0: Today's podcast is presented by Soda Sense. I'm just an ordinary
1: average guy. My friends all are boring, and so am I. We're just ordinary average guys.
0: Today is Tuesday, June 9th. We have Dr. Mike Klein on the podcast today. Decky Curious, how are we? We're
1: doing great. Andy Ankle Socks just having an absolute blast. Yes, Dr. Mike Klein recommended from the great Jack Burke. Jack Burke actually had him as a teacher his freshman year at St. Thomas. Uh, In the light of the George Floyd murder, the riots, the protesting, everything that's going on in Minneapolis, Andrew and I got curious again. We want to dive more into this conversation of uh, social injustice and racism. And we hired, we we brought Mike on, who is a uh, one of the of professor at Saint Thomas, who is in the Peace and Justice Department, and he studied uh, this type these types of topics, including um, the one we talked, or including racism. He's been doing that his whole life, essentially.
0: Right. And I think one of the cool pieces that he brought light to was his vision trips that he led from, you know, early 90s until just recently. He's been running vision trips all across, um, you know, the greater United States and just outside the United States, you know, giving back the community. So we broke down Dr. Mike Klein's story in becoming an activist, and he uh, gave us a lot of tips and tricks to, you know, to continue our uh, level of curiosity in Black Lives Matter.
1: Absolutely. Enjoy. Mike Klein, welcome to the back pocket, buddy.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Actually, I should say Dr. Mike Klein, right?
2: I'll take that. Thank you. I've been Uh, called worse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love him. I think that's like a running professor joke that they're always saying, you know, I can be called worse. That's what Dr. President Sullivan said, actually.
0: Yes, that's right. First thing. off the podcast like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we were just talking off air. This is a a big milestone for uh, the back pocket for us. Um, you're our first professor that we've had on post graduation. Now we've been graduated for two years. Uh, during our time at Saint Thomas, when we started this podcast, we had like twelve to fifteen professors on, and uh, we're glad to be back in the realm of professors.
2: I'm a- honored to kick off the next chapter of professorhood on your show.
1: <laughs> Thank you, man. Um, this might be a loaded question, but I I guess I should start here. How have you been, man?
2: Uh, it is a loaded question these days. Uh, but personally, I've been good. I'm struggling with the the situations that we're in and, mm-hmm. and the overlapping situations right the the complexity of this moment of uprising of uh of the murder of George Floyd of what to do about policing of all of those things and pandemic and climate change and me too and immigrant rights and all the other movements that are swirling around us uh so it's always hard to say i'm good <laughs> right except to say i'm 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 hopeful. I'm good to see the way that people are coming together to try to make change and the way that people rise up when the challenges come.
1: Love that. Um, could, And, you know, to build on that a little bit, like, isn't it kind of interesting? We've spent, I think, 80 plus days now in uh, quarantine or with social distancing and everything going on with coronavirus. And in, in a far more important social justice issue comes up mm-hmm. and – it makes coronavirus just look (laughs) irrelevant
2: yeah i um i wrestle with that too because in a way uh they are overlapping complicating factors for each other right i mean Mm -hmm. this obviously the moment we're in is so important and so crucial and and it's urgent but then there is the importance of taking care of the most vulnerable in our society being safe with each other uh, trying to find ways to figure out how masks and, and hopes for vaccines and all that come together. I don't think we can forget about one in the midst of the other. You know, I, as we uh, as we organize protests, people are out there trying to keep social distancing, trying to use masks, trying to be aware of health, safety, vulnerability, at the same time raising their voice, trying to make a change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just can't forget about any of it. Sometow- somehow you got to hold it all.
1: Yeah. Like the other day we just went to a uh, the sit-in protest at the state capitol. Yeah. Um, hands raised that was my first ever protest that I've been to and I think same with you. Andrew. I can say the same yeah yes. congratulations yeah thank you no it was amazing and uh, super inspiring and impactful just to hear some of these young uh, black voices speak mm-hmm. and it was very cool but it was also very cool how they organized it yeah. so it was like iterations Um, I kind of think of it as like sets because I'm a big fitness guy but it was like they started with about 10 minutes of talking then they would go into actually no they started with five minutes of silence complete silence. Then they went 10 minutes of talking. Then they played some music for about ten, five, ten five, 10 minutes. And then they went back to silence and then talked some more. And they did that for three hours straight. Had ever, everyone had to sit in the lawn. The sidewalk was your main means of access. And, uh, they held the tight line. It was very impressive.
2: And this is what I love about what I get to teach because there's a history to this stuff, right? There are yeah, skills yeah. to doing this. It's not just spontaneous uprising, it is learning from the past. It's trying to figure out the best dynamics. It's trying to pull people together from all of their different specialties and, and skill sets and professions to figure out how we make change effectively, efficiently, ethically.
1: Yeah. So let's go into that a little bit. I would love to hear um, kind of your background behind uh, you know teaching social justice and uh, peace. I know that's the, your department that you teach at at St. Thomas, or you're an assistant professor, I believe.
2: Uh, yeah, associate professor. Associate. Yeah. Sorry, not assistant.
1: Um, so, could you dive into that a little bit more? like how'd you get into this study? um What fascinates you about it? Um kind of just the story um leading up to today?
2: I will with the caveat that I'm a professor and I love talking, so you got to interrupt me and you got to stop me if I Hell get yeah. To course, oh yeah of course of course of course I'll say this um and I often start out this way when i'm uh, when I'm doing public speaking or working with groups. That you got to look at me and see I'm a blonde haired, blue eyed, white, middle class, middle aged male, heterosexual, cisgendered, right handed, fill in the blank, right? I am all of the dominant characteristics of a dominating society. And I got to figure all that stuff out as I'm doing this work, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it is uh, figuring out how to do storytelling well. Uh, There's a a theorist and an activist that I teach about, Marshall Gans. He grew up in the uh, United Farm Workers movement. Uh, He went to uh, social movements and spent time in and out of both movements and academy. He's at Harvard now teaching. And he talks about a story of self, a story of us and a story of now. And somehow we've got to figure out how to be able to tell our own story, right? Sometimes Minnesota nice and all of that. We're supposed to not be too conceited. We're not supposed to talk about ourselves, but we have to, in order to tell our story in a way that connects to other people. Mm. Right. And then we start building a story of us to say, who are we together in this work? I've got to be conscious of my own story as I gather with others to figure out who we are together. And then the story of now, how does my story, how does our story matter in this moment? And so I think there's so much about that that I appreciate in terms of what you're doing on these podcasts, right? About getting people's stories out there, about really going past just the easy labels and the, the first descriptions to get deep into someone's narrative and to figure out why that matters, what it means for all of us, Right. So for me, again, out of all those categories, categories characteristics, uh, I grew up as a lower middle class kid in Brooklyn Center. I went to St. Thomas as an undergrad in the 80s, All right, I am a triple Tommy, uh, undergrad, graduate, and doctoral work.
1: What was St. Thomas like back in the 80s versus now?
2: Uh, now we need another hour or so. Okay? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, St. Thomas back then was much smaller, right? I think we had 2,000 people when I was there. We're up around 10,000 or more now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very much a liberal arts college. In fact, it didn't become a university until just about the time I was graduating. Gotcha. So uh, it was uh, smaller, uh, liberal arts focused, wider. Uh, it, was, it was a good place to be. But for me, as a lower middle class kid from Brooklyn Center, it was also like a fish out of water experience, right? There were a lot of people there with a lot more money than I had. Uh, there was a lot of uh, kind of my limited experience and my very introverted, kind of quiet self uh, being challenged by being in this new environment. Uh, And at the same time, it was a really dynamic time. Uh, It was uh, the late 80s. We were talking about U.S. intervention in Latin America. We were talking about apartheid in South Africa. And a lot of my activism really started as a student on campus trying to figure out what it means for me, my identity, in this little Midwestern college to care about uh, South African apartheid. Right. And to figure out what I could do about it from where I am. Uh, and that was a kind of a powerful opening for me. In terms so it was of getting a started.
0: global push that necessarily yeah. sparked the the uh, passion to invest into social justice. Yeah. And I'll mm-hmm. be
2: honest, the first things that got me going were the music of the time. Right. Uh, Peter Gabriel and Sting and Tracy Chapman and all these people who were playing, who started talking about human rights, who started having concerts to raise money and awareness for this stuff. And the music that I love started pushing me toward more of the issues that I came to care about. Uh, Films at the time really mattered. And then it was calls for activism, uh, calls for divestment from uh, South African uh, companies and businesses doing business in South Africa. And that seemed uh, big, but it seemed real. It seemed tangible. Like, yeah, we could get the university to do something, right? We could work together to figure out how to have a little impact here that would add up to the big impact there.
1: Mm got it so what was like the so that was kind of the initial spark um on the activism side Mm -hmm. uh what is it like to care about something that's so external from yourself and then tying it back to again we you mentioned the now how do you act in the now to actually make a change or at least try and push for a change in somewhere that's so much further away from you
2: that's a great question and a hard one these days right because yeah. we're in the midst of change that we want to see and nothing seems like it's enough right and mm-hmm. it, it always feels like the, the little bit i can do does it really matter and sometimes it's uh history looking back to say yeah it mattered and here's why it worked and here's how it worked right mm-hmm. but i think um i think part of it and this is both my story but also i think something uh that your listeners or your viewers will pay attention to it is um It is where we start, right? We're motivated. We feel some kind of urge to do something, and then we take a first step forward. And it might be a great leap into making some real change, or it might be a stumble against a community that's suffering or uh, our best intentions that go awry. And so in some of my early steps, it was a lot of volunteering. Uh, My parents uh, did that a lot. Uh, My mom and dad were great examples of that. And so when I got to college, uh, volunteering is what I started doing. But the more I volunteered, the more I started wondering, why hasn't this changed yet? Like, if we've got all these people out here doing all these hours of volunteer work, why do people still show up uh, hungry and without a home and needing justice in different ways? And so uh, those questions propel me to start thinking about more than just volunteering. Like, why are these systems so embedded with injustices? How is it that the work I'm trying to do to step forward and spend a couple hours a week helping out at the homeless shelter, how does that uh, fly back in my face in many ways? Uh, for me personally, and how does it seem to reproduce itself uh, over the years through all of these systems that have a momentum of their own. Uh, The analysis started getting deeper, started imagining different ways to work, and realizing that uh, in addition to volunteering, uh, organizing mattered, economic justice work and capacity building mattered, community building mattered, policy level work mattered, all of that stuff had to be a part of it. And I didn't have to do it all. That's a great liberation to feel like I don't have to do everything, right? Mm -hmm. But I have to do something. And what is my something now? What can I do in this moment? And then how do I connect my stuff to other people's work, right? So uh, the volunteering was uh, still something I love to be able to do when I can do it, but I'm more and more compelled by the way we educate and transform structures, uh, educate about and transform structures than just trying to respond in the moment, right? The urgent stuff is so important. But some of the really important stuff is long term and uh mm. structural, not just uh kind of the quick band-aid approach. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, I think that's you know, something that Andrew and I are, are battling with or uh, slowly realizing is like, you know, we I think this is the first time back pocket this this current week that we're in right now, uh, a week after the uh George Floyd um murder, was the was the fact that we're we're taking a stance. You know, we are here to support um, black lives. We know the black lives matter. And, you know, we're here to to move the ball. Granted, this is one week after everything already happened. We attended our first protest, like all great stuff. But again, I'm starting to realize myself like, wow, this is this is something that that not only I have to get used to in terms of the support, because I've quite frankly, just have not process I never really processed it fully in my head before, so I never said much. Um now that i 've taken the stance it 's like, wow i gotta continue to do this and continue to do more in the long term and i 'm realizing that 's just like it's a it 's a long fight it takes time
2: yeah, and it 's a lifetime of work to do, but it 's gotta also be today right so mm-hmm. it's that tension between uh that very urgent moment, the fierce necessity of now, the first fierce fierce urgency of now, as King said, uh but also about this long term vision for change, and that can be daunting, it can be overwhelming. But that's also why we need community, that this Mm -hmm. work isn't done in isolation. It's not about, you know, our posts, our donations, our single acts, but about how those things come together and how they build across relationships and communities to build solidarity for real change. Yes. And I appreciate what you guys are doing because uh, your honesty about kind of where you're at and stepping in for a first time, going to a first protest, that can be the thing that reaches somebody else to say, maybe I'll try that too. Right. Uh, Maybe I've been following this thing and I love their stories. And now they've said this is important, and maybe I'll pay attention differently, right? Maybe I'll see you in a new way.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking for Deck and I, I, we started our last podcast that we released with Io and Aaron, and we explained how we didn't necessarily know why the Black Lives Matter movement was so important and what it actually meant. And we left that three-hour conversation beginning to know, and I think that was like the a really kind of aha moment for Deck. Like we we don't know but we are starting to like join that marathon of knowing because it's not a sprint. And that was a a saying that the 17 year old student uh, shared at the protest. Yeah. She said, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Um, and uh, when I uh, explained that to a couple of my family members, they're like, yes, that's, that's, that's uh, well said. And they were sharing it's, you know, you have to start with your roots. And I think Declan and I are able to start with our roots here in the twin cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty incredible that we've, the, um, the fire has been lit here in Minneapolis and that we can be that voice to people that are, you know, just graduating, uh, in their late twenties. Um, and that's our primary demographic. So we can try our best to help them begin to know, um, and being in, uh, white suburbia growing up in the suburbs of Chicago and then going to St. Thomas, I've been kind of surrounded by the same type of white privilege, um, consistently. So I've never been comfortable in the uncomfortable with asking um, uh, a black friend, how do you feel in these environments? I don't know if I've ever asked that until uh, Io sat down and Declan actually asked the question, like, how do you feel being on this podcast, sharing your message to an audience that's primarily white? So it's been really cool that, you know, it's making me super nervous and super uncomfortable and sweaty talking about it. But it's been been great to like think and, and try to push myself through it day in and day out. And I know it's only been a week, but I love that I have a platform that I can resort to and know that I can come to this to work through these thoughts. And that
2: feeling is so important because
0: we tend to shy away from it, push away the stuff
2: that makes us feel uncomfortable. That's where growth happens. That's what learning is, right? That's where the challenge is. So I'm, I look forward to those moments now, right? It's still uncomfortable. I still feel like, ah, I'm, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to do the wrong thing. But the alternative is nothing. The alternative is just being passive right? Mm-hmm. So we've got to find a way to have that sense of agency, of stepping forward, of being bold, and at the same time, the humility to think about what is my place in this? what, How can I best contribute? What is my story to tell? What story should I leave for other people to tell? And, uh, and we'll all make mistakes in that, right? Mm-hmm. And the humility to say, I might make a mistake where I just made a mistake, and then to figure out how to move forward, Absolutely. Uh, I think is central to this work. Yes.
1: So Where you, you kind of mentioned like you took a step even forward in in curiosity rather after volunteering and realizing that this, Mm -hmm. these issues that you were helping out with were far greater than the numbers that were showing up uh, to volunteer. So what was kind of the move and push to, you know, really put yourself into policy and really push yourself into uh, teaching?
2: I wish I could say there was one moment, but there's such a collection of things that happen over time. Awesome. Um, uh, when I, I left St. Thomas, I uh, graduated in 90, and then I came back four years later to work in campus ministry of volunteer programs. And I worked with uh, the vision program there, Volunteers in Service Internationally or Nationally. It's January and spring break trips mm-hmm. to be with communities who are in struggle, to learn from them and to try to contribute something to. And uh, the, one of the first trips I did was to Guatemala, to San Lucas Toleman in a, a Catholic mission in Guatemala. I was, uh, what, 25 years old, I think. 26 barely a few steps ahead of the students that i was leading into this place and frankly it was still prior to the peace treaty right we were going into a a low intensity conflict zone to work as volunteers with this community that we knew very little about and looking back i can't believe uh that that happened (laughs) that i was there Uh, i'm a little uh embarrassed to say that is uh an element of white privilege right i was in the right place at the right time to get a job to do work that other people could have done better. But I ended up in that space. I went to Guatemala, and I was bowled over by this community that was not about going down to save the Mayan people in the highlands, not about trying to change their lives, but about trying to create a support, try to create the mechanism for them to decide what they wanted, and for them to find their own agency, their own empowerment, to be able to make the community that they wanted to see. And that was such a flip for me on the way that I had always been uh, kind of in organizations and doing volunteer work, where it really was this kind of white savior complex, right, of uh, people who have privilege and power should go help the less fortunate. And that's that's an, a good motivation, right? But it tends to reproduce the situation instead of transforming it. It really? tends to mean that the people in the situation have to then rely on people to come in and make the change instead of getting the encouragement, the, the empowerment to be able to make their own change with mm-hmm. support, with solidarity with other, from other communities. And the more I did those trips in places, I mean, this was the greatest education of my life. I love all the classes I've had at St. Thomas and all of those different degree programs. But going to learn from communities who are both facing struggle and have these incredible strengths and deep ties to culture and deep solidarity, that was my education. And it still is. Right? I'm 52, and I'm still figuring this stuff out, and I will until the day I die, but that doesn't mean I'm going to pause or wait or delay on the next step, on what comes next.
0: Mm. What were some of the other places that you were able to um, use the vision trip to uh, help give back in communities?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, were all, we had 20 trips at that time, so we were all over the place, and I tried to do one each January and spring, um, so I think I did 14 or 15 trips while I was in that program. Gotcha. Uh, we went to the Eastern Caribbean, uh, St. Lucia and St. Vincent. We were in Puerto Rico. Uh, We were all over the U.S., uh, in Appalachia, in inner city Chicago, in uh, Cochiti Pueblo, New Mexico, uh, up to White Earth Reservation in Minnesota, and Selma, Alabama, maybe one of the most impactful places for me, right? I had gone down there uh, in 1997, I think, and we were meeting then with foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, people who were in the movement in the 60s and were still working for change and there to tell their story, to help us understand the history that we had never been told, that we really didn't know, right? Most of us had heard about King. We might have heard about Rosa Parks. We didn't know about any of the rest of it. And to spend a week in that community just uh, opened me up and tore me apart in ways that I'm I'm still kind of working through. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got home from that trip, the dean at St. Thomas at the time realized just how much students were learning from that experience and said, you know, we really ought to take that one-week volunteer trip and make a whole semester class out of it. And so I was going to teach that with another professor, right, because I was just a staff person at the time. And that other professor uh, at the last minute couldn't go, and I went to the chair of the department and just said, what do we do, right? It's just me, the the volunteer director, and what do we do now? And uh, his response, this is Father David Smith. He's the founder of this Justice and Peace Studies program that I teach in now. His response to me was, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. And I had to think about that because I don't think that was a compliment exactly, but uh, <laughs> but it was permission to go do something instead of nothing, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also look back at that time and think, uh, so we did a semester-long class on the civil rights movement, and I am the one teaching it. I'm the, the middle-class, middle-aged white guy. How is that just, right? Could there be someone else whose identity, whose scholarship, whose background, whose experience, whose community leads them to be more qualified to do that trip again another example of white privilege of kind of being in a mostly predominantly white institution at a time when i was privileged to be able to learn from communities and then end up uh, leading this course another kind of privilege heaped on top of that Um, i was at least aware enough at the time to think it can't just be my voice in this class right that i could bring in uh, activists and leaders and scholars from around the twin cities And when we go on the trip, that I would make room for the voices and stories of the people in Selma and in Memphis and Birmingham and Montgomery, where we went uh, during that week. And then coming back, trying to figure out how do we go from that understanding into really getting deeper into not just civil rights, but the black liberation struggle and struggles for human rights all over the world in a way that was um, authentic, that had integrity, that decentered my voice and created room for all these other voices. That's I got, I got to do that trip eight times. Wow. And wow. again, one of the greatest educations of my life. Um, and when it was time for someone else to do it, uh, who, whose identity qualifications and else, uh, other categories made it mo- m- maybe more, uh, made more sense for them to lead that trip. Then I could step back and do something else. Gotcha. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just such profound experiences of again being in relationship with entering into communities who are willing to share their story and willing to do some of that education along with us.
1: Um, if you have any, what, what were some of the more impactful stories or maybe findings that you had when you were down in the in Selma?
2: You know, I think a lot of it for me, I, I'm actually I'm remembering something that you said when you uh, when you asked this question to begin with. Um, it was one thing to go away to Selma and to see all of the injustices that remained, right? Mm-hmm. Selma's done a lot uh, to try to come from where they were in 1964 and 65 uh, with the, the march from Selma to Montgomery. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of, of work that's being done. There's a lot of political work, a lot of grassroots community work, and change is happening. But at the same time, when you go to Selma, it's still Broad Street down the middle and it's mostly the white community that way, and mostly the black community the other way, and the disparities are stark, and the reality of racism is still very apparent and Then we drive home right and this this is one of the profound lessons that sticks with me. We're driving home uh we you know we have a fifteen passenger van and twelve people packed in, and we're driving through the night to get home from this week long experience and the whole time people are processing, just kind of talking it through, trying to imagine. Uh, how do we make sense of this and how do we carry it forward? And one of the things I kept hearing is students talking about how bad the South is, right? The racism of the South and how it's so black and white down there. And it's such a long history of, of terrible racism and such segregation. And so after 24 hours in a van, we're finally getting home. Everybody's exhausted and ready to get out. But I'm hearing these stories And I decided I'm going to pull off the highway and we're going to take kind of a circuitous route home. And we go through the west side of St. Paul in downtown and we go through the east side and the north side and Frogtown to get back to St. Thomas. And at first, people are confused, like, why are we doing this? What? Let's just go home. Let's just get this done. Why are we in all these neighborhoods? And I didn't have to say a thing. It didn't take them long to realize these cities are segregated, too. It's really clear to most people where the black neighborhoods are, where the Latinx neighborhoods are, where the Hmong neighborhood is, where the Somalis live. We've, we've got it here in the same, maybe not exactly the same way, but in very stark realities where the, the statistics are, are disturbing, right? Where mm-hmm. our inequalities here in this state, especially between black and white communities, are some of the worst in the nation. And we don't want to believe that. Right. That's not the Minnesota we think of. That's not what we want to think about ourselves. Uh, But it's not just Selma, Alabama, and it's not just uh, the urban area of any big city. It is the reality of these Twin Cities. Right. Of work we need to do. And it is about the protest of protesting the murder of George Floyd. It's about the arrest and the accountability of those officers. But it's also our economic systems, our education systems, our policing and prisons our our jobs I mean all kinds of things that we have to do on a structural basis yet,
1: right. just wanted to take a quick pause and say thank you, interns for you know obviously listening, but purchasing these mugs that we've been coming up with the last three to four months I mean we got necklin, we got the baby yoda, we got our standard one, and uh we just wanted to say thank you, but now. We have another opportunity for you guys. Please listen up here.
0: I think we need to get our listeners involved more with the customized mugs because they can be distributed and created on demand. So we want you, marketing interns, to come up with some creative ideas and jump into our DMs and send them our way.
1: Yes. If you have any sort of mug that concept or idea that you think would absolutely pop off, again, like Andrew said, please shoot us a DM and we'll workshop it. And,
0: you know what? possibly put it out there and in the meantime head over to metromugs.com and check out the ones we have already and uh, let the idea start flowing absolutely use promo code back
1: pocket for 20% off go get it similar to the olympics where the torch is lit signaling that the games have begun back pocket is doing the same thing with every podcast and soda sense i know you guys as listeners might not uh, feel the smells or sense the smells like we do but i'll tell you what North Shore, by far one of my favorite candles. Go ahead and head over to Soda Sense and buy your candle using uh, promo code Back Pocket. It's B-A-C-K-P-O-C-K-E-T
0: for 20% off your first order. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I think of is, is there busy coffee in the refrigerator? Because we delete busy coffee faster than anyone I know.
1: Absolutely. We are control all deleting busy and the best part is is we have a bottomless supply at any of the local markets. If you're listening now, uh, and today is in between May fifth and May 9th, we're gonna hit you with this one. We got a two for seven deal at Cub Foods. Run there now. They just they just opened up their line at Cub Foods. Go take take advantage and buy yourself some busy and be a part of Team Busy Cold Brew. And that's where, you know, that's where we what we talked about earlier, like where it can start to become overwhelming because oh, yeah. as we start to listen to these voices as we start to learn more and unpack and getting, like you said, go into the history of, of how, wow, this has been going on forever. Like it, what it feels like. Um, I mean, where do we start? I mean, and I would, I would ask the question in the light of if you were a 24 year old, um, white guy or girl, um, in the community right now, what could you do?
2: And I want to say the, the short easy answer, which isn't this simple But the shorty easy answer is start where you're at, right? Look in your, uh, where you live, with your families, with your communities, with your job, and try to figure out if you can start making change from where you are, right? It's a great thing to go to the protest, uh, to go show up for a prayer vigil, uh, to pay attention tomorrow for the funeral services for uh, George Floyd, uh, to help create art, to engage in mutual aid. We all have something different to offer. And... We're not all called to do all of it all at the same time, but we are called to do something. So even for me, you know, again, I'm 52. I'm a peace studies professor. It feels like I should have all this stuff figured out and I should know exactly what to do and where to start. And I'm overwhelmed. Uh, There's a lot going on and it's hard to know where to begin. But I also know that um, my job is to teach. So I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about how I teach, what I teach, what I can do now, what I can do going forward. Uh, this is going to change me if I'm paying attention, if I'm taking responsibility for that. It's going to change my syllabus. It's going to change the readings that I bring to class and who my students are reading, right? It's going to challenge me to think about how we get outside the classroom and learn from members of the community, just like I talked about with that Selma civil rights class long ago, right? Not to be uh, so clear about my own sense of what is right and true and just, not my own assumptions and my own knowledge and expertise, but to think what is mine to do and tell what is mine to do with others and what is mine to let others do. Mm. Right. And that's not a simple, easy thing to do. It's not a one-time decision to make. It's kind of a constant processing of who am I in this? What is my role and how do I work with others to create um, more than the sum of its parts, Mm -hmm. more than what I can do by myself.
0: Mm -hmm. And, uh, We've been asked that same question, like how, um, since having that conversation um, by friends and uh, people who listen to the show. And we even asked Io and Aaron, like, how do we make that change? And they gave, you know, more interpersonal answers, Mm -hmm. like be comfortable with the uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. own your responsibility, own your accountability, ask yourself how. Mm -hmm. Because when you personally put yourself in that personal reflection, you'll come up with things that they won't, they d- not necessarily wouldn't have thought of, or they are doing, but not necessarily applicable to you. Um, we had a conversation just with our roommates the other day, and they asked us how, and like I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a concrete answer, and it was driving me nuts.
1: We just talked with I and Aaron like an hour before. We're like, no, 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 this is how it is, and it just like <laughs> felt like we were
0: over-explaining, and it. Just, I don't think anything was like really concrete, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And then the more and more I thought, like, how how can I make the change outside of just you know having the conversations on this on this show? And I was like, oh, there's a simple one when people are asking you, are you safe right now in Minneapolis? Instead of responding with, yes, I'm safe, um, I'm, I'm removed from the chaos, I'm in a safe spot. There's a there's a way more proactive answer that you could simply have because now you're a messenger. Uh, you have a family member from Chicago, you have a family member in L.A., in Atlanta, asking you how you're doing. You have the opportunity to to express what's going on here, and now they become A messenger when they're asked what's happening in minneapolis or how your cousin is doing how your friend is doing in minneapolis and simply explaining there's unequal treatment going on here in minneapolis and um we are taking action through protests and there are riots going on and we are doing our part to create a voice of the unheard and trying your best to explain that situation so that when the person hears it now they're going to be a messenger to the next person and that was like a little simple way that's how i can make a difference outside of you know having these conversations and that will evolve into the next thing and there's
2: there's so many pieces about this that are central to what i get to teach right about justice and peace studies looking back at how people have made change and think about how to be strategic and tactical about the change that we can make now so i'm i'm happy to just unroll this now for yeah, a while. Absolutely, yeah, see, please absolutely right? please um i think part of it though Uh, I I don't want to just repeat what some of your other guests said uh, because it sounds like they covered it so well. I heard that podcast and they had some great stories to tell and that that kind of inner work is so important, right? Um, And we would say there is this intrapersonal work to do, this stuff inside that we've got to work out. There is interpersonal work in our relationships. There is uh, community and organizational work to do. And then there is systemic and cultural work. And in some ways, we have to figure out all four of those levels. We really have to be inside and with each other and making change and then trying to really transform society as well. So when we get down to it, though, concretely, it's about, I think, looking back at how have people dealt with this in the past, right? How have people in similar situations uh, learned to make change in ways that we can pick up and work with? So we've got all these kind of models and concepts, and this is where I'm looking for the blackboard, uh, you know, where Shoot, can our, I start? our boards <laughs> over yeah, there? Board's <laughs> over <laughs> there. We, need to, we need to put that on Re-adjust wheels. It, yeah. I'll, I'll send you graphics or something if you <laughs> really want. But, but one of the one of the things that we use in our classroom is called a social change wheel, right? And it is about thinking through strategically different categories of change and what is most appropriate first, second, and third. What are things that should happen concurrently? What uh, strategies depend on each other? So we've got. You ready for the lecture now? This yeah, is yeah, Professor
1: So. I love uh, how you're pre-hyping your lecture this is there awesome. You go. So
2: seven categories in this wheel and this might be a conceit of an educator but educations in the middle. Right? If somebody asks you how you doing, that's your opening to give them an answer you want to give and it might be more than they were looking for. But you can say you probably saw 38 seconds on the nightly news about what's going on in Minneapolis. Let me give you a few minutes about how I see it, about what I'm understanding and complicated for you. Right? Um, Make it a a deeper, richer understanding of what's happening. So, education is often in the center because people have to understand, but they also need to learn how to make change. So, whenever we're talking about change, education is something we're always either coming back to, starting with working in somehow. Mm. But then, these other categories, right? Volunteering still matters, right? I don't want to disparage that from what I was saying earlier. We have to be able to meet people's immediate needs. And a lot of what's happening right now in the Twin Cities is really under a category in social change or social movement uh, theory that we call mutual aid. When people can't rely on the police to police the neighborhood anymore, they set up their own patrols, right? When uh, the food sources, the grocery stores burn down or are shuttered, then people come together to figure out how to make food pantries, how to create what they need when the thing you usually rely on goes missing right? And so that sense of mutual aid, of supporting each other, of volunteering in the moment is crucial in the midst of crisis. And that's one of the ways that we can step forward. Uh, I know a number of the students, uh, graduates of our program, have simply uh, put out on Facebook or on Instagram, uh, here's my Venmo. Send me 20 bucks if you got it. I'm going to collect a bunch of money and I'm going to respond to a community that said, here's what we need. And I'm going to go shopping." That way it's one of us instead of 20 of us, right? And that's about the pandemic and all of that too, trying to stay safe. Mm -hmm. But it's coordinating people's generosity, making sure that communities get what they need, and then going out and buying the stuff and bringing it to them. And that is not presuming that anyone knows what the community needs. It's responding to their call and then trying to be an organizer of the people you know, the friends who can send you 20 bucks on Venmo, and go out and buy this stuff. And I've had, I've, I've had students who've been reporting back. They will take pictures of the receipts of the stuff they bought, pictures of the back of their car full of stuff and say, here's where your 20 bucks went. And some of them have raised $4,000, $6,000, $8,000 just by tapping their friends to say, can you help? Right. Mm-hmm. So that category of of direct need, meeting a direct need in the moment is essential in the moment. It also doesn't make the change, right? It sustains people. It addresses the immediate need. But then we've got to start thinking about how the bigger changes happen. So the other categories are things like community building. And this can happen before the crisis or after the crisis, right? If we think back to something like the civil rights movement, it was the black churches and the black uh, community organizations that had already built this sense of community that could rely on each other. And when the crisis came, when the protest happened, you just call people up because you already have this this community of people who will respond. So community building work needs to be constant, right? All the way through before and after the crisis. Uh, We have uh, other options to work on capacity building, trying to help people gain the skills they need, trying to help communities gain their own self-reliance economically instead of having to rely on outsiders or big box stores to be able to uh, sustain small businesses, uh, to be able to help businesses do better at what they do. Uh, to be able to build the capacity of leadership in the community through training and through workshops to be able to better organize, better hear uh, what's going on in the community, better direct those efforts. Uh, We've got uh, work that we can do around uh, the formal political process, around voting and voter registration, around supporting candidates, uh, around trying to get people to run for office who may not have been represented in the halls of power before. And then Related to that is public policy work, and this can be uh, direct public policy work, which is really, you know, legislative work and lobbying legislators and trying to do national and state level work, top-down kind of work. Or it can be uh, work that really happens from the bottom up, trying to figure out how to advocate for the causes you care about, uh, trying to step forward and connect with legislators through emails and calls and visits. Uh, We have grassroots organizing work to do which is somewhat about that policy work, but it can also just be about getting neighbors together to talk about the things they care about the most, right? Uh, A lot of organizing work happens not by saying, here's the problem, let's get people to do something about it. Instead, it's about going out to say, what's the problem? And how could we work together to do something? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are power dynamics that are really important in some of this work. And one of the ways I like to sum it up in the classroom is to say, what if we think not about what we're going to do to people, Or for people but with people right those little words Mm -hmm. have a lot to say about power because when we're doing things to people it's kind of paternalistic and it's assuming that i know what somebody needs and to do it for them is maybe generous but it's also about assuming that we're going to do it and they can just passively wait for us to make the change Mm -hmm. but to do it with somebody means we need to be in communication we need to know them we need to listen carefully to what they most want and then figure out how to work together. So figuring out to or for or with might be a really important question in all of these moments. And then sometimes protest, right? Confrontational strategies. Uh, Sometimes things just aren't changing. People don't get arrested. Uh, People aren't paying attention. Or things get swept under the rug. And then we have to go down to the Capitol. Then we have to march through the streets. And we have to figure out how to make our voices heard in a way That breaks a deadlock or that raises an issue that's being ignored or that puts pressure on authorities to be able to make the change that needs to happen.
1: Yeah. So going off that, I mean, we've seen, you know, black people fall at the hands of police for years Mm -hmm. and it's just been a reoccurring thing. It was really cool for Aaron to um, be so factual in his speaking and being able to pull up every single name when they passed away and like what the occurrence was pretty much to a t for the last 25 30 years It's very impressive um so the so it's clear that the systemic change is not necessarily happening because you know you you just spoke of like the protesting and the marching in in the streets as like the okay if all of this stuff didn't work before now we protest Mm -hmm. and so it seems to me that if we're already at the now we need to protest but we've been doing that for the last x amount of years that tells me that there's something wrong um so with that being said, I mean, what what I guess is wrong right now? Like, I know there's all kinds of stuff, but I know I hate to ask the vague question, but I need to know, you know, in a, especially as someone and as us, as people who are trying to educate, like I'd re- love to know, like kind of I know you brought up the seven different aspects in, within the social wheel. Where do you think the one is hurting the most right now?
2: Huh. Well, let me first let me clarify. I think those seven strategies are about how we can make change on any topic.
1: Right. Oh, okay.
2: And so some of them are going to be more important for some topics than others. Mm. Uh, Sometimes there are economic causes to a problem. And so we can use that economic leverage or that capacity building work. Uh, Sometimes it's more of a legal issue. Sometimes it's more of a just a a human dignity issue. And Mm. so I think uh, one of the power, powerful pieces about those kind of concepts is that it doesn't matter what the issue is. It gives us choices to make about what I'm going to do, what you're going to do, how we're going to connect the dots between those to be more powerful, right? Uh, so that's that's kind of the strategy of how to make change. What change do we need to make, right, is the question that you're yes, getting at. Yes, essentially. Um, how do you make that list, right? There's so many things that are uh, good about where we're at, our situation, uh, but maybe differently good, better and worse for different people depending on on their identity, their legal status, their participation in structures and systems or the way they've been uh, sidelined from them. So I think part of that first step is trying to figure out um, what do I misunderstand about the world as it is, right? What is it that I might need to know differently? Because, uh, you know, I've grown up, with my own family, my own community, the schools and the the religious institutions that I've been a part of. And I may not have seen very far beyond the boundaries of those things, right? The horizon of my experience is always out there somewhere and there's always a next thing just over that horizon. So what what stories could I listen to? What could I learn to really understand what some of the problems are uh, for different communities, uh, for different identities? And there is no end to that process. Right. So, uh, which gets
1: back to what we were saying about the long term changes. Yeah. It's a consistently reiterative process.
2: And and again, um, we can't do it all, all at once. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything. It's just a matter of stepping forward in something that's interesting to you at the moment, right? Something that compels you or grabs your attention. Um, I've got about eight stories I want to tell, and I'm trying to choose between them to th- figure out how to answer your question in oh, a way man. that's tangible. Tell right? them all. Um,
1: Again, run down the list, Mike. <laughs> I know
2: the uh, the hard part, and the reason I'm I'm hesitating is because you're asking like, what is the most important thing to do right now? And there's a lot of ways to qualify that to say, well, it kind of depends on who you are and what you want to do, and
1: right. And I think that's a great basis, you know. Right. So I'm I'm sure as you tell one story, it's going to tie to the next one, tie to the next yeah, one. Yeah. Well,
2: how about this? Let me refer to one person and then tell this story that I've got in mind. Beautiful. Um, so Ricardo Levens Morales is a uh, an artist here in the Twin Cities. Uh, He's from Puerto Rico originally, and he does all of this really amazing print work and poster work about social justice issues. And we had him with our group at St. Thomas, Students for Justice and Peace, talking about his work on art for social change. And this is an interest of mine, too. And one of the students asked, like, how do you decide what to draw or what to put in your art? And how do you, given your identity, think about how to work with communities that are different from your own identity? And his answer, which I think was beautiful and applies to all of us, is he doesn't try to reach way out beyond his experience to create art about some issue that's distant from him. He draws what he knows, right? He lives in a community and he draws and makes art about the experiences of living in that community. And they happen to be a lot of issues that need addressing about social justice. But a lot of his art is also about beauty and about empowering people, and about the heroes of the past, and the work we have to do now. And I think there's a lesson in there for us to say, wherever we are, whoever we are, there is work to do, right? And to do something that is not uh, flinging ourselves into the void of social change to try to figure out uh, how to be a superhero with a cape, but instead trying to figure out right where I am, right with, uh, with the community I'm part of, and the people I'm with, how do I start doing something? How do I work? and you know in our program in justice and peace studies we teach about liberation theology this tradition that came out of latin america and has gone around the world in terms of thinking about the religious aspects of how we think about change but that doesn't mean we're trying to create a bunch of liberation theologians who graduate from our program what we need are liberation accountants and liberation real estate agents and liberation engineers and liberation marketing people and liberation podcasters right we need to figure out whatever we do how do we create more justice by doing it? Mm. So here's the story that I want to tell. So uh so I'm I'm an artist. I was an art major, undergrad, uh, and a theology major. My parents were thrilled, right? Very practical, <laughs> practical work. And so uh I've gone back and forth with the amount of art that I get to do. Sometimes I'm too busy with work and I don't get to it, but I've I've really enjoyed getting back to it in a way. I'm doing a public art piece for the city of Brooklyn Park right now, uh, through Springboard for the Arts. And it's about exploring the new uh, Bottineau blue line that runs up. It's going to be the new light rail line up to Brooklyn Park. And I I got intrigued by this person, this Pierre Bottineau, that the the name and the line of the boulevard is named after. And I started looking into his identity as someone who is French-Canadian on his dad's side and was uh, Anishinaabe and Osinabon on his mom's side. right? So he is, on one hand, the white settler, and on the other hand, the indigenous person from this
0: area—that's uh, uh, Native American. This is yes, okay. Uh, this is uh,
2: and this is Pierre Bottinot back in uh, the eighteen eighteen hundreds. Okay, right. He was a, a fur trapper, a voyager, a guide, and he helped to uh, name and define a lot of these communities: uh, Saint Anthony, that became Minneapolis, and Brooklyn Park, and Osseo, and some of these places, uh, areas that I grew up in, and. I'm making this a long story. Let me uh, shrink it down to say, as I'm studying this person, thinking about what kind of art I could create around his identity, uh, I'm starting to think about a canoe, right? Because that's something I love doing. I love paddling, and it's kind of him as the voyageur, but it also comes out of the American Indian tradition, the Native American tradition. And so I've been building this thing, which is this massive wooden canoe for kids to play on, but it has words on it like settler, and indigenous and it's meant to say in a lot of ways we're all in the same boat but maybe there's a question mark for me on that title and it might just show up in the title now uh, because we're all in the same waters maybe right but our boats sometimes look a little different and sometimes we live on some luxury yachts and sometimes we're barely clinging to the raft as i'm researching this idea this uh, canoe form this person this pier botano I start finding his name attached to things that I didn't know he was a part of, right? In 1862, there was a war between the Dakota and the U.S., uh, the Dakota Native people, the uh, American Indians. And uh, and at the end of that war, Governor Alexander Ramsey said, we will expel or exterminate these people, right? That's pretty much the definition of genocide. And that alone was startling. And then I found out this Pierre Bottineau was the lead guide on that expedition that Henry Sibley took out to chase down and expel or exterminate the Dakota people. Now, I know Ramsey, Sibley, these are familiar names, right? Mm-hmm. High schools and, and streets named after them. And there's this history of genocide. And I, I'm, I, it's not new to me for what I teach, but it's becoming suddenly very real in the resources that I'm finding, the stories I'm finding from history. And then just one step further, and I'm getting to the point of the story, under under uh, Pierre Botten's name is another person's name Abner Spencer my ancestor well wow. he's a soldier on that expedition going out to expel or exterminate the Dakota people my family right my people and you know I've I've worked on and off with some uh indigenous communities with Native American communities here in Minnesota and elsewhere and I'm doing research with uh, the Mendota Dakota right now. And that was, uh, that was a whole new level of accountability, in a way, or responsibility to think, what does it mean that my ancestor was part of that and that I've benefited from that as a settler still here in Minnesota, right? Dakota people still here, even though they were expelled or, or, or listed for extermination, those communities are still here. Those descendants of people are still here, and it's their grandparents, their great-grandparents who were pushed out or killed. And now I'm here, too. We're all here. So what do we do with that? And I don't have great answers about it, but it's personal. It means something differently to me now that I know more of the history and the story. So that's a long way of getting around to your question about, like, what do we do and what's most important to do. Some of Some of it is to figure out who we are in the story, Mm. to know not just this moment and what we could do to get food or to protest or to lobby and uh, lobby about legislation, but to figure out how does my story intersect with this story and what uh, it might not be my fault that that happened in 1862 and three, but it might be my responsibility to figure out what to do now, right? What to do in this moment.
1: How does it work with like a judge, the, from a judgment aspect, uh, even personally from feeling and recognizing like, oh my gosh, I was a part of the problem back in the day. And I feel like a lot of us, if we were to do that same sort of deep dive, you could find the same thing in some regard. Moving forward now in, in the presence, like how do you, I mean, is there any judgment that you give on your own family, uh, for those types of things or how do you cope with that?
2: I think, uh, yes, there is a judgment to make, and if that's where we end, it doesn't do much good, Mm. right? Um, We do need to judge. We need to be evaluative about uh, whose responsibility, who gained, who suffered, what happened in the past. And then to think about how those things ripple through to the present, to know what kind of accountability we could claim, what kind of responsibility we could take right now in the moment, right? Right. I live in St. Paul. I've got a little one-third acre lot uh, not too far from St. Thomas, and that's Dakota land, right? That land was taken in 1805 through a treaty that was never fulfilled, and then through subsequent treaties as the Dakota were pushed off that land. So what does it mean for me right now to be working with members of the Dakota community, contemporary living people, and I'm on their land? you know it's been other people's lands too since that happened but it was taken from them by force through fraud through genocide and now i live there and what does it mean right and I, I don't know what to do with that yet i wish i had a great answer for that um i i i would like to keep living there and so what do i what do i say about that when i'm working with the descendants of people who for whom that was their land right some of that is about understanding different, uh, different conceptions of land, right? Our ideas of deeds and ownership are a very different idea than the relationship that the Dakota people had and have with the land. And maybe there's something in there that we need to learn from each other. Maybe there's a way for me to take responsibility uh, that isn't about immediately tearing down my house and restoring the land to prairie and giving it back, but figuring out what other kind of relationship I can be in with Dakota people, knowing that land will still matter. that there might still be reasons to get into those stories to figure out how we move forward together. And it might not just be uh, writing a check in reparations, although I'm sure that would also be appreciated, but maybe it's also about uh, creating opportunities that haven't been there, acknowledging the story, at least to recognize the errors of the past and the atrocities of the past, so that we can be together in that story instead of one people neglected, set aside, or erased and the rest of us moving on with a, a limited view and a nice view of what's happened. Um, there are all kinds of things we can do. None of them will be by themselves satisfactory. None of them are enough, but let's do something. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's take a next step.
1: All right. No, I, I think it's really cool. What you said about, you know, it, if it stops at judgment, we're not doing really anything. Okay. And I think that with you living on like a, a previously owned uh, Dakota land, uh, you know, judging that fact or worrying about whether you should be there or not doesn't really accomplish anything.
2: Well, it's a step, right? It's a step. Yeah. It's good to be able to consider that and to and to worry about it. That's all right. But if that's all we do, it doesn't lead to much, right? Mm-hmm. I think we can keep it in mind as we then try to figure out what to do. What are the next steps? Shame and guilt. That, that's probably appropriate that that rises up in us as we learn these stories of the past and whatever our family's role might be and then what does that impel us to do what does that move us toward in terms of being in solidarity with those communities now and listening carefully to what they think we ought to do i got i got two for you here okay sorry i'm still in the classroom now uh, more or less uh virtually at least mm-hmm. um, one of them is this and i I'm going to misquote this. I'm pretty sure it's uh, Rumi, a uh, Persian poet from a long time ago. How do you spell
1: that, Marcus? You can look it up for you. R-U-M-I.
2: R-U-M-I. And, R-U-M-I. Okay. I, and the quote is simply this, that we have two ears and we have two eyes and one mouth. And maybe that's the proportion for how we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. That we listen twice, twice as much as we talk. That we watch carefully twice as much as we say anything. And I... I forget that all the time, right? I'm a professor. I talk all the time. That's just what I do. But I need to listen really carefully. When we get on social media, when we're hearing the news, when we're getting these stories about what's happening in Minneapolis, maybe instead of immediately throwing our opinion on top of that or telling our view or our story, maybe we should shut up and listen for a while. Take it in. Pay attention especially to the voices of people who are most subject to the injustices that we are paying attention to and caring about and listening enough to understand at a deeper level than we do right now. The other way that I like to kind of flip an idea to get at this is that we usually think about wanting to make change in light of something like the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, mm-hmm. right? That's in all kinds of religious and spiritual traditions going way back including the Bible, many others too. That's the golden rule. I want to suggest, and I've heard this from others, it's not my thing, that there is a platinum rule. right? Instead of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what if we do unto others as they would have us do unto them? You
1: get the flip? Right, in- what they would prefer rather than what we would prefer. Instead of us mm-hmm. assuming
2: we know what's right and we know what other people want and doing it unto them and that they would want the same things we would. What if we would do unto others as they would have us do unto them? Meaning we have to be in communication with them. We have to be in relationship with them. We have to be in community and solidarity with them in order to understand how to move forward together. It's a It's a different way of saying not to and not for, but with. Great.
1: That's fascinating.
2: And I screw that up all the time, right? Because I'm, I'm really quick to want to jump and do and, 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 and think that I know what ought to happen. And uh, it's a challenge to me to continue to learn how to listen better, how to watch carefully, how to be with others, and uh, not just assume I know what's going next.
1: What is uh, something that you've seen or listened to in the last two weeks that um, you've really digested?
2: Uh, digested yet? I'm not sure. Um, sure, sure. Uh, I I would say this, and this is very much. This is why I'm hesitating about it being digested yet, because uh, I think I'm still working on it. Lots of people are still working on it. It is uh, the first night when so many buildings went up in flames. Mm-hmm. Who burnt down those buildings? All right, and that's in the debate right now. That is the. It's in the news. It's in. It's on social media. It's in conversation. Uh, the questions come up like, why did they burn down their own neighborhood? Right? And so then you hear alternative stories or answers to that question to say, black people rising up to mourn and to grieve and to express anger about the death of George Floyd are not burning down their own community's buildings. It is, and now fill in the blank, right? Right. It is, uh, according to the governor, out-of-state activists uh, who are coming in across the border 10,000 of them to to burn down our cities. Oh, maybe it's not all out of state people, maybe it's people from in Minnesota, maybe it's still people in the twin cities. Maybe it's anarchists, maybe it's white supremacists, maybe it's Boogaloo boys, maybe it's uh, Proud Boys, maybe it's and I've had to shut up in that. Uh because from my own biases, what I want to say is of course people in their own neighborhoods would not destroy their own neighborhoods, of course it must be somebody else, not us, not Minnesotans, not Minneapolitans, not people from the Twin Cities. It must be someone else who's doing this. And then there's conflicting evidence, right? It's clear that there are people coming from out of state. There are people from greater Minnesota. There are people from the Twin Cities. There are people from within neighborhoods who are causing destruction and damage. And there is a long tradition of outside agitators being blamed for the destruction of protests and sometimes the claim that it's an outside agitator makes it easier to crack down on the people who are actually leading the protests right mm. and so and and i'm not claiming any one of those things to be true i'm saying in this moment what i've tried to listen to and learn from in this week is that there is probably some truth to many, if not all of those claims, and then how much truth, and what do we do with it, and how does it change the way we try to act in the moment and create policy going forward.
1: Right, and, you know, again, going back to the Io and Aaron podcast, they kind of uh, reiterated that same thing. Like, yes, that first night after it happened on Tuesday, they were furious. They, mm-hmm. were, they had a lot of anger built up, and they let it go. And, you know, looking at the news, I said, hey, yeah, I was recognizing all my boys out there. Like it was it was a crazy uh, moment, but we were all there. And then he said uh, the next day, a little less uh, the next day, even more, even more or less. And he's like, it, it, it kind of came down to, you know, this was now they the black community created a platform for opportunists to take advantage.
2: And this really is. In line with, it's not unusual in terms of social movement theory, right. and social movement histories, mm-hmm. right? That there are, in many protests, agent provocateurs who yeah. might come from splinter groups. They might come from antagonistic groups. They might come from law enforcement. Right. Right? Yeah. And if you're angry and you're just pissed off and you can't stand it anymore and you can't live like this and you can't breathe and somebody whispers in your ear, maybe we should break that window, Right. That's what an agent provocateur is in a social movement, in a protest movement, right? Somebody who is there not maybe to even do it themselves. I mean, we've all seen that video of the guy in black and the gas mask smashing the... The The windows of the
1: auto zone. Right, Right. yes.
2: Um, and, And sometimes it's just that blatant. Other times, it's just someone saying, you know what, you deserve to throw this brick. Your anger is righteousness. Maybe you should take one more step, right? And... The history of social movements is is full of those kind of agent provocateurs who weren't necessarily part of the community rising up or about the strategic campaign of the movement, but people who were there to see it go another direction. Right. Beyond that, you've got all kinds of the other splinter groups who are on the edges of or countering from within or coming from outside who decide, you know, 10,000 people are going to peacefully march but three people break a window. And on the news that night, what you're going to hear is protests turned violent when windows were smashed downtown, right? And it disregards 9,907 people, 97 people, because three people broke a window. And those are the kind of dynamics that are are, uh, common in social movements. Those are the kind of stories we need to investigate and be critically aware of and try to make sense out of when we get these little snippets on the news, when we see the post on social media,
0: mm-hmm. and then flipping it on the um, the protests that have you seen been successful, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the one that we sat in at Lower Saint Paul, how there is a systematic approach. Um, I'd love to break that down because there was an instance similar to like had a potential headline grab where someone like kind of stormed the the steps and it got a little. Harry, people like stood up and things were broken up relatively quickly. But then the, the woman speaking was like, this is what they're going to show on the news. Please for please just sit, embrace what we're saying. And let's remain in like this position and not try to provoke a new story. Um, let this story be peaceful. So I'm curious from your side, if you could break down the systematic approach of how you do protest and you do start to see community growth.
2: Uh, we've got a class on that for a semester, so sure. let me see what I can do in there, right? Um, we, I just got done teaching a class on active nonviolence and on social movements uh, throughout history and how they've tried to do this kind of work. And social movements aren't just protest, right? There are all kinds of things that happen in a movement, but protest is maybe the most pointed and obvious and conflictual moment of the movement, right? Um, so th- there are also lots of schools of thought about how to do a protest, Right. There are uh, kind of purely symbolic protests where people feel like it doesn't matter what the outcome is, I need to get out and say my piece. I need to be out there making my claim, and whatever happens after that is is up to others. There are people on the other end of the spectrum who say this is a strategic element of a long-term campaign, protest is a strategy, and it has a place at a moment in a campaign or in a movement and it needs to be coordinated, carefully planned, strategically thought out, consequences imagined, unintended consequences anticipated, and uh, and everything in between, right, of that spontaneous kind of symbolic action and that uh, deeply planned strategic effort toward protest. So on that strategic side, you know, there might be efforts for change for days, weeks, years before you decide the protest is the next step. Uh, In social movement theory, it really started with psychology thinking that protests were always this kind of spontaneous outburst of emotion. And then it became more about sociology saying, no, I think there's something more uh, planned going on here and more intentional. And then it's political science and peace studies and others saying uh, there are skills here, there are strategies here, there are structures and ways of doing this that differ and that we can learn from. And so as uh, organizers, Uh, decide when to protest it might be that there has been policy work done and political action taken and community building work and all of these other strategies and they keep running into dead ends and keep running into brick walls and the change seems like it's never going to come and everything else has been tried and so what else have we got to lose let's take it to the streets or it could be we've been in negotiation and we're at a deadlock in the moment But we think there's a way through if we can put some pressure on some particular politicians or on some policymakers, and now is the moment for a strategic protest that will raise the issue for the public where it might have been backstage for a while, or where the protest will bring the right kind of pressure on a particular group to now come back to the table and negotiate in good faith or to take a next step with us. So protest organizers may or may not do the permitting process of whatever jurisdiction Uh, they're in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I use this example at the University of St. Thomas. If we're going to have a protest at the university, you can do it in the quad or out in front of the arches at St. Thomas, and that's under the jurisdiction of the university. If you get to the sidewalk on Summit Avenue, that's the city. If you step out into the street, it's the county. If you get onto the median, it's the park board. And every one of those people has a different rule or a different set of rules about protest. So you've got to be really strategic about who you're going to ask, where you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, and to think about the consequences of each of those choices. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, protest organizers likely will work in coalition with other groups. Now it's not just you, but you've got to be on the same page with the other 7, 10, or 25 organizations who are co-hosting your protest. You've got to think about uh, whether you're going to have marshals or peacekeepers. People who are trained to intervene if it goes the wrong way, if somebody disrupts your plans for the protest, or if that outside splinter group starts doing something you don't want to do.
0: Right. And the one that we were just at, the National Guard was um, throughout the whole protest. I mean, there was 10,000 people there. The National Guard was walking up and down, passing out water and mm-hmm. snacks to keep people hydrated, but also to keep peace. But then the the actual protest was led by high, a high school, right? 17 to, and younger um, Primarily women, um, so it was like it was very interesting to note um, that these were the voices that you know stood up in front of the ten thousand people and shared their messages. Some call us the back
1: pocket and Metro mugs uh, as a conglomerate. We some call us the pioneers of drinking things that's not coffee. Out of a mug.
0: From gin and juice to, you know, your dirty monkey to just simply water. We're drinking everything but coffee in our Metro mugs. Exactly. And with that, we would love you
1: interns to please do the same. Send us a picture of you drinking your, in quotes, coffee out of your mug. We want to be, yeah, we want you to be a part of this absolute dynasty that's to come here. And we want you to join on the ship right now.
0: So head on over to Metro mugs. get yourself a metro mug, join the back pocket community and use promo code back pocket for twenty percent off it's, lit. It's, lit.
1: It's, lit. It's, lit. it's really hard to like tell people how good something smells when you're know, like you're listening to it. you can't like audibly explain how good something smells
0: right, especially when you, you light the candle to kickstart a podcast. It sets the mood. Everyone's kind of on the same wavelength because the candle's been lit. But it's hard to, like, you know, verbalize and, and like, help the listeners feel that. Other than saying,
1: it's lit. That's about it, right? Like, I hope everyone knows that, like, when you light a, a Soda Sense candle, Travis Scott somewhere says, it's lit. Every time. It's that's without just, without fail, without fail, it's proven, guaranteed with every SodaScent order. Get yours today. If you've never ordered a SodaScent, shame on you. First
0: off, but second off, no worries. Promo code back pocket, get twenty percent off. Hey Deck, people are saying you're the busiest person in the Twin Cities. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, they are. They have been calling me Decky busy. Everyone knows it, and it has. I mean, I, I mean, I wake up at five a.m. every morning. Usually go and jump in the lake. uh run back put my clothes on go to work i'm usually at work till about you know 4:30 or so and, and then yeah. you
0: come home to back pocket and you're still operating how are you able to do that dude i i, I don't know i think i like i'm i'm a decent guy i don't know i think it's because you just been inhaling busy coffee right when you wake up mm how could I have forgotten? I got to go back to my roots here.
1: Legacy. I've been I've been drinking Busy Coffee for over a year. This stuff absolutely gasses me up, gets me going every morning. Some of the finest tasting cold brew in the nation, I'll say it.
0: And now we're proud to say that Busy Coffee is a sponsor of the Back Pocket Podcast.
1: Absolutely. So with that being said, marketing interns, please go to any local supermarket and buy yourself a Busy Cold Brew. They got um pretty much all the options that you could ever ask for. And they got all the deals at every local market, including Cub Foods, Kowalski's, Target, and all co-ops.
2: Right. And again, uh, law enforcement, protest organizers, outside groups, participants, all of these people have a different motivation for being there. And they might have a different idea about what's supposed to happen. And so it is a fraught situation. And it's fascinating for that reason. But to be an organizer of those things is an overwhelming task. To figure out how to anticipate all that. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, another example, uh, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in January of, I think, 2015 in St. Paul. And it was on University in Snelling. Uh, It came down University, but then took a turn over the highway and then came along Concordia. And I uh, was in the march and saw a friend of mine who is in law enforcement. And so I stepped out of the march just to ask, so, you know, what is happening here? What do you expect to happen? And the again, the protest marching through the streets was city police, St. Paul police, and their approach to it was, uh, you're supposed to follow the permit. You're supposed to follow the route. Now you've deviated from it. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. The sheriff's office is there. And they're saying, we're just going to clear the streets and make sure everybody gets through safely. I don't care about the permit. That's somebody else's deal. We're just going to make sure you've got room to do what you need to do. And then there's a ramp going down to the highway and the state patrol is there, arms crossed, cars across the ramp saying, you are not coming this way. Right? So you've got three different law enforcement folks, squads, all doing something a little different. And the protesters and the organizers have to figure out how to negotiate those dynamics too. Mm -hmm. Wow. To try to get to the point of their protest, which might be again, again, raising awareness, influencing policymakers, uh, expressing anger and channeling people's anger. Yeah. You know, one, one reason you do a march is because otherwise people are going to use violence. And if you can get them to march for a mile to the Capitol or 55 miles from Selma to Montgomery, you might channel that anger into something more productive instead of seeing it go off into violent and unproductive means.
1: Yeah. So even touching more on the, the means and methods of the protests, like when, uh, the the Black Lives Matter actually did get on the highway mm-hmm. and they created that sort of like how Aaron kind of described it was like we want to inconvenience people to grab their attention and then explain to them why we're doing this. Right. Um, so how would that even work? You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's a totally different. I mean, the intention makes sense, but the the process yeah. of how to execute that seems crazy.
2: Well, and part of it is very much like Aaron said, it's about getting people's attention. Yeah. Right. And people have been working on issues like this for decades. Right. Maybe we can say longer than that. Yeah. Trying to make policy change, trying to influence how policing happens. And it doesn't seem to change. And so at yeah. some point, one of, the form, one of the reasons people protest is to try to bring forward something that's been neglected, something that hasn't moved, and to try to push it further. But part of it, too, is that we have, again, this is... Um, kind of social movement theory uh, piece of this, repertoires of contention, we call it, right? Usually in St. Paul and Minneapolis, we go to the Capitol, we make a bunch of signs, we have a bunch of speakers, we listen to some music or performances, there are some claims made, people pass out, you know, next steps to influence your politicians, you go home. And that's how we protest, usually in in the Twin Cities. You know, in, in Paris, they barricade the streets. I've never really understood why, right? Like, you set up a bunch of stuff, you block off the street, maybe you start a fire, and then you create a confrontation with the police. We don't tend to do that here once in a while, maybe, but you know Paris does their thing, we do our thing, and if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again at some people at some point people are like yeah, another protest, another thing, no big deal, nobody cares, the news won't cover it, people won't pay attention so the idea of going on on highways there are there are cost benefit calculations being made there yeah, right. about there are risks, there are inconveniences, there are dangers to this, and people aren't paying attention when we gather at the Capitol. People don't seem to care when we have a march through downtown. So here's a new repertoire. Maybe this will get people's attention.
0: Got it. Mm-hmm. And that goes with uh, Colin Kaepernick and him taking the kneel uh, during the national anthem. Yep. That's something... That, Um, you know, I I can't remember what Olympics it was, but that was, it was a similar act where the three, the two guys took up their hand with a black glove. Um, and this time Colin, Colin Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee for social injustice and everyone took it like it was the arms, arms, uh, people fighting overseas. And then that's what created the giant uproar because no one had done that prior. That's not in the rule book of, of protests. I don't like that now anything similar to that we hate we do not like and we frown upon that right. now um, it's two sided and now it's two-sided and, so they created the conversation yeah. but and
1: to your point like the idea that it it sparked a totally different argument that what from the original intention like that's got to just be horrible or and just sucks like
0: right and that's what um uh io was saying what was the term he used? gaslighting yeah of you yeah. know they they were putting Colin Kaepernick in a different box to blame him for something completely different so that now he's the ultimate bad guy when really he was doing something that now, right, right now, everyone is fighting for, or, you know, the Minneapolis and what Tecla and I are trying, we're fighting for. But when I looked at it at first, I followed the gaslighting. and I was like, why are you disrespecting the troops? Why are you doing that? And I I let the narrative get pushed the wrong way. Um, Because we just didn't
1: know. And it goes
2: right back to what you're doing. Storytelling matters. How you frame the story and how you create a message matters to people because most of our experiences are not direct experiences, right? We live in a neighborhood. We have roommates. We have family. We we have these limited experiences about the world, and almost everything else is mediated to us. That's Mm -hmm. why we call it the media, right? Because they are taking something that happened somewhere else, and they are telling us a story about it. They can't tell us everything. They're leaving out parts. They're telling us parts. And there are interests in all of that storytelling, right? And so anytime there's a story told about Colin Kaepernick, who's telling the story matters, what their agenda is matters, how they tell the story matters. And sometimes the story just gets out of control, right? The meaning gets shifted. Oftentimes the meaning is shifted, right? There is an intention to take that thing and make it something else. And that's politics. That is the, the the political, is trying to convince people of a certain position, trying to show people, no, he's wrong, we're right. Uh, but it can also get to a point where it's inauthentic, where there's no integrity to it, where it's clearly just uh, a political manipulation. And I think that's the challenge for you as podcasters, for me as an educator, right? Everything I do in the classroom, either reproduces society as it is or challenges it and changes it. And that's a huge responsibility. And the same thing to you. Every time you decide who to bring on as a guest, every time you ask this question, but not that question, right? There is that uh, possibility that we are just letting something go that ought to be challenged or not carrying something forward and raising it up that needs to be expressed. Mm Mm-hmm. What a massive responsibility. Sorry to lay that on you all the time. (laughs) That's tough. That's a head scratcher. (laughs) I know this isn't isn't a new idea for you, but Mm -hmm. it is that sense that uh, we have a tremendous responsibility when we're telling a story to try to get it right, but not just as if there's one right way to say it, but to think about who's left out of that story, is it mine to tell, and what consequences will it have?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the way you digest the story that you're about to tell, you know, I'm like either living through it or hearing about it or whatever it may be, how you're digesting is equally as important. Um, but going up back, even back to the idea, I'm kind of more curious of the um, historical um, aspects and outcomes of protesting. Mm-hmm. When has the protesting really actually led to the change that we all want to see? Um is has there been situ? I, I'm actually kind of seeing them now with like the. I saw something with the Minneapolis school fund mm-hmm. cut their ties with or cut their million dollar contract with the police department. I would say that's has a lot to do and change. Uh, has has a lot that change has a lot to do with the protests. Yeah. Um, you can
2: look at this moment and think about all the things that are changing right now. Yeah, and yeah. here's here's the hardest thing about social movements and all protest. It's very difficult to say here's the cause, here's the effect. Yeah,
1: insert and ins and outs.
2: Right, because there are so many dynamics at play. But would we have now uh, murder in the second degree for Derek Chauvin? Would we have Keith Ellison as the lead prosecutor? Uh, Would we have charges for the officers? Would we have the U of M separating itself from the uh, uh, Minneapolis Police Department? I mean, there are all of these things that are happening right now, that weren't happening a few days ago that are happening now how much of the, is that about protest and public pressure and i'll say this definitively we can't know exactly the cause and effect we can be fairly certain of an effect it might not be the only thing that made the change but it, it throughout history we can see where it has made a difference right mm. protesters out the white outside the white house changed nixon's mind on lots of issues that wouldn't have happened uh except for those protesters the movements of the past so so i'm getting lost in all kinds of thoughts here because there's so much to say about how to show the connection between these things sure, sure. many of the things that we take for granted right now as either rights or privileges come out of social movements the 20th century in america was full of movements uh the labor movement has done incredible things through protests, through organizing, to be able to give us things like the weekend, the 40-hour-a-week, uh, uh, vacation time, uh, health care, disability, uh, workplace safety, child labor laws. None of those things were just given to people, right, by the government or by the uh, economic leaders. It was demanded by people. The same thing for women's right to vote and women's equality which we're still working at, right? Uh, the same thing for gay rights. Over the last few years, it's amazing how far that's come when it was something that people barely talked about and, and pushed to the margins and now suddenly is, uh, is codified into law and continues to be something that's at the forefront of our consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, name, name a social movement. Protest has been a part of it. And it is oftentimes the lever that moves things past that moment where things won't change to the possibility of things actually changing.
0: Legalizing marijuana. It's it's making its way. <laughs> it is. <yeah>. And it's <laughs> it's amazing how far that's come mm-hmm. in just a few years. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Wherever
2: you stand on these issues, right, you have to acknowledge that the change is because of those kind of dynamics. Right. Because yeah. of protests, because of social movements.
1: Yeah, and that's why I wanted to ask that question because I was fairly certain that that was the case where there does there a lot of change just comes from these uh, protests and everything because it it, was just interesting how we go back to what you were saying earlier on, you know, protest sometimes is, is the final lever. And we do all of these things from policy to filling, fulfilling needs to listening to self-reflection that ultimately at the end of the day, the, the biggest action is sometimes the reaction.
2: Yeah, and I want to I qualify that too or challenge it a bit to say I don't think protest is usually the last action. I mm. think it's the biggest thing we see. And sometimes we're surprised mm. by it and it looks like the first. And sometimes it's the last big thing we see and it looks like the end. But even in uh, Martin Luther King's philosophy about social change, he said protest is a moment in a movement, a moment in a campaign. First, you collect the facts of the injustice. You make sure that you actually know what's going on, not just have a good impression or a good idea about it. Then you engage in negotiation. You try to figure out through the channels that are available to you, how do you make change through legislation, through city council, through the police union, through whoever it might be, right? To figure out, is there an opportunity? And if there is, use it. Because if you go to protest without having tried some of those other things first, people are just going to stare at you like, we got a process. Right, You haven't tried that yet. What are you out here demanding this for when you haven't even talked to us yet? Mm-hmm. So King would say collect the facts of the injustice, engage in negotiation, use the channels that are available to you. If you find that you cannot get satisfaction there, if you can't make the change through the channels that are available, then self-purification is what he called it in his letter from a Birmingham city jail. Make sure that what you're going to do next is for the right reasons, that it has a chance of success. And that you are also thinking about the good of your adversary, the good of the whole community, not just self-gain, right? Mm -hmm. Collect the facts of the injustice to negotiate and use the systems that are there. Self-purification to make sure you're clear with yourself, that you have integrity about what you're going to do. Then protest to create a tension that people cannot live with so that they will come back to the table and renegotiate. So that they will consider a different way forward or getting past that logjam that led you to the protest and then get back to it after the protest. Now you have to go back and negotiate for the change that you want to see Mm -hmm. to create new policy, to see funds moved in the direction that it ought to go, to get people's voices out or people into office to make the change. So the protest is almost never the first thing or the last thing. Mm. It is a moment to get past the deadlock. It's a moment to be able to lever leverage change, and then you have to follow up and actually do the change.
1: Right, and I think part of it too, um, what these protests have done to me, and uh, what like Io had said earlier. God, we are really plugging our previous podcast. Please go <laughs> listen was to great. that episode two sixty six. To listen to <laughs> awesome, uh, was you know just for like for um, white privileged people, you know our hierarchy of things that we value sometimes racism. Falls not directly impact us on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. and I think what these protests have done, um, and everything that's gone in these last couple of weeks, is raised that um, that word, that um, symbol of racism. It's gone up, and I feel like everybody would probably before all this happened would probably have said, "Yeah, racism is a is an important thing to talk about. It's an important thing to think about when you're voting," but now. After seeing, listening, digesting, talking, having these conversations, all these different things and impact, now I feel like people are actually a little more confident in putting that up higher up on their list. And now,
2: what I want to oh, you had a question. No, keep, keep, keep going, keep going. I what I want to say in that moment is so, okay, if we're now paying attention in a new way, if it's now up there on our list, mm-hmm. that's a start, right? That's step one. Yeah. Right? Now, how does it work? Right? How is it embedded in our beliefs and our ideas and our culture? How is it embedded in our systems, in our institutions, in our policies? And what do we do to change it? Mm -hmm. What do we do to work on those things? Because racism sometimes gets boiled down to uh, people hating each other, right? Or discrimination based on skin color.
1: Yeah. Actually, Aaron had a great uh, way to put it. He said it's um, racism is power plus pigmentation plus position.
2: There you go. And what do we do with it to change those three elements, right? How do we adjust power? How do we think about who has power and who doesn't and how we can make a more democratic way forward or a different way to create space, Mm -hmm. right? How do we imagine the positions that might need to change and who needs to be in positions to be able to allow for the change to happen? And how does my pigmentation uh, qualify the way that I engage in this, right? And how much I listen and how much I speak. And where do I take action in leadership and where
0: do I follow and support and stand in solidarity? It's perfect. How do you, how would you perceive our generation's response um, to this in the last week? Um, you know, you have social media now to like really engulf and take in a ton of information and see how other cities are handling um, these protests and what they're doing. I'm curious what you think of our generation. And I, I just read like something very brief. It might have even been a headline gram of, of like, it's been really cool. This, I, I think there's going to be some significant change from our generation because it seems like there's a lot more diversity in who cares and who's, who's willing to take action. Um, so I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you think our generation has handled just this last week? And maybe some if you can tie it back to further things that you've seen from uh, people of our age. That's a book, right? That's a yeah. big question to, <laughs> to try to get it like all of these are.
2: Um, I
0: will say this. I mean,
2: I, I, I have a skewed view, right? Mm-hmm. I teach justice and peace studies. And the students who end up in our classes attracted to our programs are passionate, are powerful, are exploring how to use their voices, are critical about power and how it operates. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I see is through that lens of our current students and our alumni. And uh, to me, it looks like we should get all this done in a couple of weeks, right? Because all that all that power, all that inspiration <laughs> right. should, should be able to solve all these issues. Um, I think uh certainly social media matters it makes us aware as a tool it gives us options to connect with each other differently that we used to have to rely on in terms of community gatherings and personal one-to-one connections um i'm i'm mixed about its power right because it has as much power to distort and to tell stories in ways that are inauthentic and that magnify uh problems instead of solving problems. It has a propaganda feel. Sure. Mm -hmm. And like any tool, it can be used for good or evil and it can be powerfully used in each of those ways. Social media has a great amount of power, right, to differently uh, qualify the way we see the world. It used to be, I'm thinking back again, I'm I'm tying back into this question about history, in the Selma to Montgomery march in the Civil Rights Movement, uh, during that first march on Bloody Sunday, when uh, Hosea Williams and John Lewis are headed down the bridge, on Edmund Pettus Bridge, and there's this line of troopers in front of them. It's Sunday afternoon, and all over America there are three networks, right? And about a third of America on a Sunday afternoon is sitting down to watch a movie, the CBS uh, afternoon movie. And in the middle of that movie, they break, right? And it's Newsflash, Selma, Alabama and they show state troopers just beating the tar out of nonviolent protesters riding over them with horses gassing them and the news flash came during the afternoon film which was the trial at nuremberg about trying nazis for their war crimes hmm. and in that trial uh people saying i'm not guilty because i was just following orders so imagine you're watching as americans as victors of that war you're looking back on nuremberg and the nazis and you're watching this movie and you're feeling very, you know, justified and you're feeling like right one out and then you see this news flash of your own country beating nonviolent protesters right and those three networks had all the power to tell the stories now i don't even know how much People are watching TV. I mean, you know, we we turn it on now and then, but a lot of it comes through social media. A lot of it is through podcasting. A lot of it is through YouTube or other online sources. Mm -hmm. And that means we've democratized the power of media, but it also means anybody can throw a story out there. And if the story resonates with me, I might not be critical about it. I might not find out who posted it. And if it's true, I might just throw it back out. And the more people throw it forward, the more it becomes the truth. Right. Right. So, again, social media has got that power to tell us a story in a way that's really uh, direct, that gives us all storytelling ability. But its power, its, its importance in terms of social movements is how critical can we be as we take in that information and decide whether to pass it on or not.
0: Yeah, we had that exact conversation the other night of, you know, we have taken all this information in through Twitter, Snapchat, Map, um, Facebook, uh, you name it. We're yeah. on there absorbing it. I've not one time tuned into CNN or uh, Fox News. Yeah. And. You know, the first thought is like, oh, we're getting a holistic approach. We're getting all the different angles. But then when you really dive into it, you know, you're just getting what you want out of it. It's the same as what CBS... Or what
1: they think you want. Right. right. The algorithms, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Or what the
0: editors or the sponsors want. Sure. What were you saying? Yeah. Well, the the algorithm is you, by the way. Yeah. You generate what you want to see. Um, But uh, the... The idea of, of, of thinking that you're getting this whole picture perspective by having social media now is is flawed because you now are going to actively seek what you want to see and also actively seek the extreme of what you don't want to see. So you have just reinforcement yeah. of it versus like, you know, people are very highly critical of CNN and Fox as, as I am because I clearly haven't watched any of it, but they are pushing the same type of narrative. It's just in a TV version way. So there really is no answer to get like the best news, but it's the way to do it is being critical and understanding like the thing that you just read isn't necessarily the answer, um, but why does that resonate with you and where do you take it from here? Yeah,
2: that self-reflection is very important and a sense of critical media literacy. How do we engage with media in a way that keeps those questions at the front of our mind, right? That doesn't uh, just take in uh, without that kind of self-conscious reflection, but is always kind of saying like, Who's benefiting from this and who's not being heard here and why are they telling me this story versus others? Uh, one of the activities we do in class, and frankly, I need to update it more for other kinds of media sources, but we try to take a single story and then find five different media outlets that tells that story, right? And we intentionally look for a left-leaning source in the U.S., a right-leaning source, a corporate media source, an international source, and something very, very local to the story. mm mm-hmm. And when you line up those five different sources, it's incredible about the different ways they tell the story. You have this reality that happens, right? The actual experience of the thing. And then you have five different sources who emphasize this, leave out that, add a bit of their own story, put a spin on it, use emotionally charged language, uh, blame someone. And in one way, that's overwhelming. Like, what do we listen to then? How do we ever find out? But the more we do that, the more we can start identifying, well, that source tends to do it this way. This source tends to pay attention. And it's not just this kind of left and right thing, right? It's, uh, you know, a lot of left-leaning sources will tell a human interest story and add a lot of emotion to it. A lot of right-leaning sources will talk about what it means for business or uh, what it means for the dominant culture. And corporate sources will think about what it means for their sponsors, and the more we get to know how different sources tell stories, the better we can critically analyze the story they're telling us. It's hard work. It's a lot of work, but it is something we can become more adept at doing.
0: Mm-hmm. And to, to update it, I'm going to re- I'm going to bring back Snapchat Map. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the first times I've actively used it. It's a feature on Snapchat where you can see, you know, the entire global map, and it heat zones what. Areas are, there's a lot of videos. So right now, if you look at Eastlake, there's like a, it's like a big red circle. And because there's a lot of people posting videos of what's happening in Minneapolis. So all you have to do is click on that, the, what you think you want to see. There's, it's all heat. It's, it's showing you by levels of heat of how much interaction there are. So you click on one that's high involvement and you see in real time, who's in, uh, putting up videos. Mm-hmm. It's strictly videos of first person perspective of what's happening there. Um, and With the
1: timestamp, too. So it will be like 15 minutes ago, an hour ago. Right. Whatever right. Whatever it is. Or live. Right. Right there in the moment.
0: Right. It says right now this is happening. Yeah. Um, and I that the last few nights uh, when the, and the when the protests first started and the riots start, first started, I would hit Snapchat map and I would just click on anything close to me to see what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I'd see, you know, the heart of Minneapolis is doing this. Uh, the heart of Uptown is ha- is doing this, which is six blocks from me, uh, East, like 20 blocks. This is what's happening here. And I'm able to, f- I think I'm taking in like the full perspective of what's happening, but I'm all- also only getting, you know, people showing the high intense things because they want to share what like is, is the craziest, the craziness that's happening. Right. So it freaks, the- it freaks me out and, uh, it definitely resonates with me, but, uh, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it. It's interesting that it's available now. Well, yeah, I think going back to what uh Doc over here was
1: saying is understanding the source. Yeah. The the and the feelings behind the people who are posting it. And I, you were getting at it exactly that with exactly that is like the people that want to actively post that on their Snapchat is they want to show how they feel. They want to show the the fear or the craziness that's going on. Um so knowing that. You know, that's how maybe you take that information in, knowing that it is an absolute war zone six blocks away, but also understanding that that's a that's just that's one perspective of all of it. Because I guarantee, if there's some there's someone else also saying, "Oh, well, we got it all under control." Like if you were to listen to, uh, like we were watching this barstool documentary where they had guys uh, within their company listening to um, police scanners at all times. And maybe if you listen to the police scanners at the same time you're watching the Snapchat maps those those are two totally different um, perspectives you know what I'm saying right. so there's always just another way to go about it I feel like
2: and I think this get back this gets back to your question about this generation your generation and what it means for social change because frankly in my generation right growing up in the 70s and 80s you had to wait a week for some news <laughs> channel. To edit the film, because it was film, not, not even digital, right? Yeah, and they yeah. had to put together this story and package it and send it off. And, and so this lag time, and again, the few channels that we had to get stuff meant that we were kind of passively fed and we had to take what we could and work from there. And this time now, not just your generation, all of us more and less adept at some of these tools, have this opportunity to see in real time what's happening and still need to critique why this is what's being shown from which angle and from which person.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but it's real time. And I think one of the things that I see in this generation is this, again, what King called the fierce urgency of now on speed, right? Like it's, it's oh my God, I can see what's happening a few blocks down here because I've got it on my Snapchat, Matt. I should run. I should just go see, right? And go see for myself. Or I can see what's going on in Cairo right now I should uh, I should spend the next three hours like following these videos and watching this stuff, and then I could I could do something right now. I could have one screen open here, and I could be watching this other thing here, and I could be sending my letter to my representative uh, through email or Snapchat or however you want to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's this urgency, this kind of almost uh, almost panic of I got to do it right now in this moment. It can't wait. It's got to be, and I I feel it. And I think it's magnified by uh, the accessibility of media. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's crazy. So, going in, kind of from the lens as a teacher, um, and I and you know, like you you mentioned, like your your set of students is obviously skewed with you know people who are already passionate about social justice and are skewed coming. in wonderful ways. Let me say, for yes. any of them who might be listening, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, what do you think, people? Um, maybe as as we as younger kids are growing up in uh, high schools or even middle schools and being taught certain different uh, different subjects uh, historically and being kind of followed a certain way. I know there's been like criticism for that. Um, from your perspective, uh, what do you think isn't being taught right now that needs to be taught?
2: Oh, wow. I'll say this. Um, a lot of the first and second, maybe even third, class uh, classes that happen in our major in justice and peace studies are aha moments. And for me too, uh, even as I'm, uh, 20 some years into this, uh, that we grow up with some limited stories and, and it's to say K-12 teachers do amazing work, right? I have it so easy compared to what they do for eight hours a day in my collegiate life where I wander into a classroom every few hours to teach a few things. Right. Um, But there are state standards, there are all kinds of pressures about tests, there are limited resources, and they're supposed to be able to kind of encapsulate all of what a a 5- to 18-year-old is supposed to know by the time they go off to college. So I want to first not make this a critique of of teachers, but to think about how our school systems are structured to reproduce the society we live in, right? Right. If you want people to be, and I'm using the phrase critically productive members of society, then you need to create them as producers, as people who will work hard and do what uh, the people who've structured the society need them to do. Right? If, uh, if you're a religious community and you want to give them a different message about uh, religious belief, then you're going to structure education to give them those messages. So school systems are set up to do certain things and they can't do everything and then kids from all of those different school systems come to college and suddenly now they might have been in the same thing for 13 years or maybe they've been moved around to several school districts but now they're at a different level of analysis where it's not just you need to pass that MCA and you need to pass the the SAT and get into college now it's, uh, it's your education It's not do what the teacher thinks is right. It's do what you need to do, and that's really hard, right? The freedom of doing education at a collegiate level is probably the biggest thing that students need to learn. And I know you were asking the question more about content, about the the subjects that people ought to learn, but I think the hardest thing is that we do a lot of training of students through our systems, and especially through standardized testing, of taking things in and spitting it back out. Right, it's what Paulo Freire calls. Uh, he's a Brazilian educator. He's kind of the the originator of popular education and critical pedagogy. Uh, I had to work in the word pedagogy for some of my students. I was just Santa. about to. I was just
1: about to say you're you're the master, or you study and do a ton of research on pedagogy. Sorry,
2: and pedagogy just how we teach and how and studying how we teach because it matters. Yes. Uh, because it produces different results. Right, and so uh, Paulo Freire would call it the banking model of education. We train students to think. Uh, teachers have information, you are a blank slate or a blank box, I'm going to deposit that information in you, slam the door shut, done. Mm-hmm. Right, And then you spit it back on a test. Well, That's not really education. That's a little more like indoctrination, right? Or at least it's just rote education. And so when students come to college, what they really need to figure out is how to learn and how to make the education their education for their own purposes instead of whoever decided what they should know by the time they got to that certain age, right? You have choice. You have decisions to make and freedom. And freedom's a wonderful idea and it's scary as hell if you've never had it before, right? It's really hard to know how to take responsibility for your education when you haven't had a lot before. And it's hard to know what to do with that freedom and that responsibility as you uh, start to imagine your life going forward and how you want to set that direction for yourself. So that's probably the, a really big and abstract answer to your question, but I think that's the first thing students need to learn is how to become learners in a way that is critical, that is responsible to themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think like part of uh, you know my journey through that um, how to learn because I'm still learning how to learn every day, uh, and I think that's like one of the biggest it's a, a great part of life. You know, the fact that we won't ever know everything. Right. Um, but also what to learn and why you'd want to do it, Mm -hmm. right? You know, my journey to as an engineer uh, versus Andrew's journey into being in digital marketing versus Marcus wanting to be a, uh, you know, video producer Mm -hmm. um, to even Jack Birkin here, uh, not knowing what the hell he wants to do. (laughs) (laughs) But there's plenty of people like that in the world that don't necessarily know. What do you say to those types of people when they, you know, when you're saying how, to, when you're saying let's learn how to learn, how do you get them to follow in that path to be obsessed with it because it's tied specifically to something that they like to do? What would you say to someone? I,
2: I mean, I've, I've got a bunch of answers to this, but one of them is that this is what the liberal arts are supposed to be about, right? You're supposed to be able to come into college and fulfill these requirements, which which may seem onerous, which may seem like you're being forced to do something. But if you have to go study history and literature and sociology and sciences, you're being exposed to things in new ways, and you might just find your passion there. You might just find something that you didn't know you were looking for. And it's an opportunity to really explore before you start narrowing your path going forward, right? Um, I think in our program, we talk about uh, this idea of a circle of praxis, that you always learn something, you go out and try it and do it. And then you come back and learn more about it, and you let each of those things inform the other so that your ideas are practiced, are tried out in practice, and then you figure out, oh, maybe that idea didn't quite work, at least not the way I got it. So now I'm going to take this experience and go back and figure out how to think about it differently, how to understand it better. And then when I've got that, I'm going to go out and try it again. And to be constantly in that circle, that cycle of trying to figure out what I know how it matters and what I do, how I newly understand something. And to me, that can really propel you forward, not just because it's good critical thinking, but because it's fascinating, because it's powerful, and because it helps you explore the world in a way that's really dynamic, that's really engaging, mm-hmm. right? Um, when I was coming to college, and again, back in the 80s, there was a lot of pressure to do something practical, right? When I declared a studio arts major, went home to tell my parents about this. Uh I remember my dad sitting me down, right, and saying, maybe a double major. <laughs> right? Okay, you want to be an artist, but couldn't you also do, you know, business or something else like that? And I thought about it. I t- I took it to heart. And he was explaining how, you know, he wants me to uh find stability and be able to raise a family and support them and all of those kind of good things. Uh so I thought about it long and hard. I explored a lot of different fields, and I came home about a year later and said, hey, I'm going to do a double major. Now I'm studio arts and theology. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said earlier, that was not exactly the answer he was looking for, right? But I was following my passion, my interest, the things that I cared about the most. And they, are, they were totally impractical, right? There were no recruiters coming to campus for either of those fields. But it didn't take more than a year for me to find my way into those fields and find gainful employment, find things I was passionate about, that I was hungry to learn more about, that I felt like I was contributing to in a powerful way. And every step of the way, it's reminding myself and even just reexamining the question of what matters, what really drives me, what do I care about the most, and then going out to do that, knowing that I'm not going to be a rich man because of that, but I'm doing fine. Right. And I'm raising I've raised a daughter now and, and the family's doing good and, and we're we're making it through a tough time, even though cuts happen and and struggles and and uh jobs disappear here and there.
0: Mm-hmm. And and through your journey as an educator, I'm curious what's been your average quality? What has been something that you've done well at times, and other times not so well? But at the end of the day, it's your average quality. It's something that you're continuing to work towards and get a little bit better at each day. You deeply care about it but you know you're not the best at it. Mm -hmm.
2: And I'm going to go right back to my introduction to say, um, I want to claim, like I know gets claimed on this podcast, (laughs) kind of an average guy, right? Mm -hmm. All that white, middle class, middle age, all that kind of stuff. And that identity is something that's important because of the work that I'm doing that I keep needing to go back to and figure out, right? Like um, I, I need to figure out why uh why it matters that I'm a, a cisgendered heterosexual male when I'm working in social movements that are about the Me Too movement, about women's rights, about LGBTQI rights. It's it's who I am. It's just kind of this this average quality, this sense of uh of my core identity, but all the elements of that averageness matter if I'm trying to work across differences. If I'm trying to work with communities and people who are different than I am. And on one hand, I can just fall back on that stuff without having to think about it much. And a lot of those categories carry privilege for me. So the work that I have to do oftentimes is identifying the privileges, but also the oppression that's associated with some of those different categories, and then bring it to bear on the conversations uh,
0: for social change. You just articulated... Our two, four year journey far better than we ever have. And that's, that's why we tagline ordinary average guys with an extraordinary passion to have a conversation with the person across from us, yeah. sharing stories of success. Um That's why we do it. We, we recognize like, Hey, we're just average guys. And we, we know that there's so many other people in similar situations, maybe in far worse situations and far greater situations, but they have a story and it's incredible when they can actually unpack who they are. And I hear you saying stories of success, but I also know from what
2: I know of your podcast that there are stories of failure too, that there are times when we have to be honest about where we haven't done the right thing, where we're learning from our mistakes and that those stories matter as much as the success
0: stories. Yes. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. just
1: love like the realness behind, you know, your answer to where you're, you know, you're saying I'm, I'm coming at a position of privilege or coming at a position of power, um, just because of being a white guy or whatever it is. And I'm actively trying to relate myself and to um any of the other communities that you feel pulled to actually help i I think it's just fascinating because i'm not the most sympathetic guy um nor do i have a lot of empathy at times either but i feel like you do on a totally different level because that's your constant practice of work is constantly figuring out how to relate yourself to um these different communities to communicate a message to to promote more change
2: and I only want to say I try, you know, I, I do want to claim that, but I also want to say there are plenty of times when I don't care enough, when I screw up, when I do my thing instead of the thing that ought to matter more to the people that, uh, that I'm trying to work with. Yeah. So, you know, it's the point is though, to keep at it, to keep figuring that out.
1: Yeah. It, again, it said the, I love what you said where it was like you learn something and then you immediately go to do it and then it comes back to learning more. Right. And the more of that, process you can put yourself in the more you're going to either you know find your passion find different things but for your sense you know when you're already in a field of doing it it that process actually never changes Mm -hmm. very cool um i was also curious um you know what what is in your back pocket when pressure becomes stress and anxiety rises um we all get have this certain feeling or certain thing that we rely on um maybe things uh plural What would that be for you when when you are in a tough situation? What do you use and what's in your back pocket to kind of help yourself come out on top?
2: Here's the answer. The first thing that comes to mind for me is about uh, being an artist, about practicing at art and the creative process that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying, uh, you know, hard times come and I go paint something and that relieves the stress. It's more like uh, we, we do a lot of analysis out of one side of our brain and there's a lot of work that I do in a university that's very much coming out of that kind of left brain approach. And sometimes I, when I'm really stressed, when I'm really trying to figure something out, I need music. I need to paint or create or, or do something with my hands. I need to activate that other side of my head that sees differently, that takes things in, in in new ways that challenge some of my thinking, that tries to connect things that don't have obvious connections or that helps me resonate in a way with something that's happening out there uh, that connects it to my heart, not just my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's that sense of um, trying to, I mean, all art is just in some ways about seeing differently about, and about feeling uh, through what you see.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I love that. And I was a little shocked when you said art. I didn't... Because, you know, I'm reading your St. Thomas bio, and that's like the extent of my research of, of who Dr. <laughs> I'm Mike I'm glad Kline you did research. Yeah. Our, our research, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. And, <laughs> and a conversation that. with Jack. I mean, he was a... I mean, that was five, six years ago when he was yeah. a freshman taking your course. Um, but the artist piece. And then there was another thing. Uh, do you... Are you a big coffee guy? Is there something I with coffee
1: yeah.
0: behind the scenes? Uh, maybe too much. It might be a
2: problem. Okay. Mm. Uh, but... I'm fascinated by coffee and I'm going to I'm going to give this warning again. I've taught a semester long course on coffee. So there's no a lot way. to say here. you're right? kidding. Perfect. No, it's a, it's a seminar that we do through our honors program. Um Sweet. I mean I love drinking coffee. There's there's that. Mm-hmm. But I've also uh partly through those volunteer programs picked coffee in places like Guatemala and Puerto Rico and and Mexico and uh there is something in coffee that helps me see the world. Right? When you've got a cup of coffee in front of you, you've got uh, international relations. You've got a supply chain. You've got the environment, uh, the the natural environment. You've got labor issues here and in producer countries. You've got climate change. All of that is in that cup of coffee, right? So I love teaching about coffee and using it as an example. And this comes really out of uh, that that educator I mentioned, Paulo Freire. Talked about education being most powerful when it's in our lives, when it's something that we can immediately relate to but use it to expand our understanding, to generate new ideas uh, by connecting what's in our lives to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So by drinking a cup of coffee, I can remember the communities that I was with picking coffee. I can think about the choices I made about this coffee or that coffee, because some of them have more just supply chains and some of them are rather oppressive in terms of their supply chains. All right. I can think about, uh, you know, the coffee that is shade grown in Latin America supports songbird communities that are now migrating up here for the summer and the coffee that i pick in a very real but kind of indirect way determines which bird shows up at my bird feeder Mm. right from that cup of coffee Uh Um, i've been working with peace coffee here in the twin cities for a long time to use them as an example to teach uh, about coffee and they do this remarkably well Right. They're deeply committed to trying to do social justice at every point of the supply chain. So they bike deliver coffee within 10 miles of their road street down on Lake Street and 22nd. So think about you as St. Thomas students, the Marshall Avenue Hill and biking up that hill with 400 pounds of coffee in a trailer. Right. Yeah. That's commitment. Yeah. <laughs> that is serious. That's work. gnarly. But they also have pictures of the coffee farmers that they work with on their bins. And every time they roast coffee, they're looking at the faces of the people that they met last time they were down getting coffee before they roast it, thinking about that connection, that community, that solidarity that matters, right? And uh, and then one of the things I love that they say is you can have the biggest heart, the most empathetic, most committed person. And if it's crappy coffee, they are not going to keep drinking it, right? <laughs> so there is also something about both coffee and art that's about beauty. It's about the richness of the experience and frankly about protest too. Protest and social justice work is not about self-sacrifice for some greater good in a way that leads to intense personal suffering all the time. There are moments where sacrifice and suffering go together. But I'm going to guess when you went to the Capitol and sat down with those students and with thousands of people around you, there is something beautiful in that. There's something powerful about that. One of our teachers who's since passed away, Marv Davidoff, was a lifetime protester, right? He was a McAllister student. He went to the Freedom Rides in 1961, and he never had a full-time job. He just went from movement to movement to protest to protest. And he would talk about it as blessed human solidarity, that every time you show up in a protest, it's like an affirmation of humanity. Sometimes on the news, it looks like breaking windows and violence and anger. And yeah, there's there's a reality to that too. But an awful lot of protest and demonstration and work for change is about this beautiful human connection and about this sense of power together in a really profoundly beautiful way.
1: Mm. What are your thoughts on cold brew coffee?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is the time right right now this yeah. summer to do it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't have uh, I don't have my little carafe in the fridge brewing right now. I should do that.
1: Well, hey, we we got you covered. Uh, we actually are sponsored by a Cold Brew Company St. Thomas right? Run Busy Coffee, oh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, after this podcast, we'll give you a free bottle. And I'm sure they'll be hitting you up after your illustrious and wonderful knowledge behind coffee. Coffee. So do not worry about a a shortage of it. It's phenomenal coffee. Um, But that was so cool to hear like how there's so much rooted in a cup of coffee. And it's something that you do routinely every single day. I think that's just a very thoughtful way to look at it and to take that bit of analysis and apply it to something totally different. There's there are plenty of things um that take a lot to get to it Mm -hmm. like a Lacroix can for example like a a candle like anything like a podcast sometimes people will come and like sometimes all we're trying to do is get people to click on the podcast (laughs) but like people don't necessarily recognize that oh it takes like eight hours to get one of them out you know
2: and and in that part of what i love about it in a supply chain analysis that's not just about profit but about connecting the dots right to get coffee to us there are ships there are um Trucks, there are warehouses, there are people all along the process. I'm a little geek about this stuff, right? <laughs> I geek out about coffee. I did a study one summer. There are about 120 hands that touch that coffee from the tree to your mug. 120 people all along that supply chain. Mm-hmm. And then imagine the truck that delivers it, right, to your local grocery store. That truck has a supply chain that goes out almost into infinity. For every tire and gauge and panel, Mm. right? And those supply chains are overwhelming in a way. But what I love about it is that it shows how interdependent we are on each other. If I want my morning cup of coffee, I need 120 people and all of their families and all the people who built those trucks and all of those systems. And not only are we then interdependent in a beautiful way, but at every step of that chain, we can do better. We can create a more just wage. We can create a more environmentally friendly process, right? It is a hopeful way of looking at the systems that we're in to think about how we keep tweaking them, how we keep working them to make for a more just and peaceful world. Right. It's
1: beautiful. It's awesome. So I had another question um, that had to do with, again, your role as a professor at St. Thomas, knowing and given the kind of situation that we're in with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and seeing colleges go online obviously for this past semester you went online and um a lot of the challenge that i see now moving forward if colleges want to remain online or if they want to have a uh an in-person experience which i personally side with knowing that i had four years of being in the classroom i loved it um how do you as a as a university as a professor um how how do you move forward, right? Because there's a, definitely going to be a side where you're going to have to be doing online classes and trying to have elicit the same response or emotion in your students in the virtual world, but then at the same time, students are paying a lot of money for your classes, mm-hmm. right? It's a very expensive college, and if you take away the in-person part of it, how do you how do you justify the cost?
2: Yeah, we're wrestling with that. It's tough, uh, and it's both for individual faculty, but it's also for universities to figure out how we do this, right? Hundred percent, and. Obviously the first thing that has to happen is uh is concern around health and especially for people who are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh that means for students, it's people who are immunocompromised, who have family situations that mean they can't bring that virus home. Uh for faculty, we have older faculty who uh also have to be even more careful because of the virus. So uh I wanna be I wanna be in the classroom. I need to pay attention to what is healthy and, and right to do. And we're gonna find that balance somewhere in that tension. Uh it's not easy. And I really imagine between now and September one, we're gonna make a dozen decisions about that. And it's gonna go different ways depending on how the pandemic is showing up, how spikes happen, how we reopen or close down again. Uh there are gonna be a lot of decisions along the way. Um, from my experience over the last eight weeks or so of the semester, uh There are ways we can do online learning better and worse, right? Um, I did a lot of live sessions on Zoom with students. It's not as good as being in the classroom. But even on something like Zoom, you can do breakout conversations. You can do case studies. You can have students working together in small groups or one-to-one outside the classroom. Uh, We can flip the classroom in a way. In other words, uh, the lectures or the movies or the things that we would use in a classroom, we might have students watch ahead of time. And then when we do get together online, we can really focus on in-depth conversation, Mm. right? Like there's an assignment I love to give. It's called a critical question where we ask students to read something, but then not just give a writing summary to prove they they read it, but to write a question for discussion, that gets deeper into the text, that interrogates the power dynamics or investigates the meaning or the theory behind it. And then they can come to class and ask that question to me, ask it to each other, or work it out in a small group. And it it can be a really dynamic process, right? For introverts, online learning has some real benefits. You know, in a classroom, you all know there are the four people who always raise their hand, right? Mm -hmm. And the ones who are right there with an answer and they're very extroverted and they want to talk it out. And then there's everybody else in the classroom who would rather have some time to think about it, maybe write about it a bit, kind of work it through, and then have a small group or a one-to-one conversation. And there are are real benefits to what we can do online. But in terms of the whole college experience, right? it's gonna be tough to measure up. It's gonna be tough to be doing everything virtually. I don't know that that's gonna be the case yet. Uh, St. Thomas, lots of other universities are saying we're gonna come back in the fall, but it would not be back in the way that we'd recognize it from last fall. right? Uh, We're thinking about if we have a Tuesday-Thursday class, maybe 10 people come on Tuesday and the other 10 come on Thursday. And then we have social distancing in the classroom and we have thoughtful protocols about how we do uh, sanitation or sanitizing of everything. And when you're not in the classroom, you're doing something online and it may not be as good. There might be some benefits that are better. Uh, College online is a different thing. It's not always a bad thing right uh but it is going to be a real switch and it's tough and I'm I miss the students that I usually get to be sitting in the classroom with
1: mm-hmm. no I right there with you man I it's I guess part of it too is just you know understanding that regardless of what you do when we all quote unquote return um that that normal is is completely new yeah and I think attacking it with the same aspects and light like that you've shed on a, attacking everything is, is attacking it with like understanding that it's okay to be uncomfortable in those situations. And through that, you change and grow and learn.
2: And I think when we say, we often say go back to normal, but really what we're saying is go forward to something new. Yes. Right? Yes. Because normal wasn't working for a lot of people. Right. Right. And in this moment, both because of the pandemic and because of the social movements swirling around us and this particular moment with George Floyd's murder, we're reexamining we're starting to think about people who are more vulnerable, who've been left out, who've been erased, who've been silenced. And there is opportunity in that to Mm -hmm. try to figure out if we have to redo things, how do we differently include people? How do we respond to people who haven't been heard? And how do we go forward in a way that gets us to a better next normal instead of back to the old?
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I absolutely love that. And to kind of continue back pockets, uh path forward i'd love to uh tap into your network and ask you who would you challenge us to have on this podcast
2: i have so many names that i think you ought to be investigating okay. and of course it's all kind of in in my first order world of social justice movements and you know so the the big categorical answer would be people leading social justice movements people participating in them mm-hmm. right uh, and there's so many movements swirling around us that's a big list mm-hmm. That's a big long list um, <clears throat> I think um I think some of the people that come to mind right away are people uh locally who would be accessible to you uh, uh or people in Minnesota that could give a perspective. I don't know how much in your podcast you've had people from greater Minnesota uh or voices from outside the metro area mm-hmm. so it'd be interesting geographically to spread it out a little bit. I'd love to see someone like Winona LaDuke. She works up on White Earth Reservation, and she works with Honor the Earth uh, to think about uh, clean land, uh, clean air, clean water, and indigenous rights. And she's been working most specifically lately on uh, the Enbridge Line 3 project, trying to put a new pipeline for oil through Minnesota. Mm -hmm. uh, That uh, editorializing now doesn't need to happen, is uh, promoting climate change, and isn't economically feasible given everything that's shifting to uh, green power, right? Uh, but she's been an activist on all kinds of movements. She was a vice presidential vice presidential candidate with Ralph Nader in the '90s and mm. early 2000s.
0: And she's got a killer name, Winona, Winona, Winona Duke. Duke. You got uh, at rocks it
2: rocks, and she is a powerful storyteller, uh, an amazing speaker, and again. Uh, out of my own interests and my own story, trying to understand more of the indigenous or Native American perspective here in Minnesota that is so central to our history and so unknown to so many people. Mm -hmm. For sure. For Uh, sure.
1: I like that. Some uh, person, actually, I would like to connect to you, and you probably already know her, Um, Marnita, Marnita, with Marnita's Table. Have you ever heard of?
2: I I know of her, but I don't know her. Okay. Yeah, so we work,
1: um, we're kind of on our team now, uh, and we produce her podcast, actually, Mm -hmm. and then we work with her, uh, just with community stuff. So I'll right. put you guys in touch. You would, you guys would hit it off.
2: I, I'd also love to recommend uh, Lee Wallace, the CEO of Peace Coffee. Okay. Right? She'd Sweet. be a fascinating one to talk to, not just about the coffee in your cup, uh, but also about shifting from, they used to be a, a non-profit subsidiary, sorry, a for-profit subsidiary of a, of a non-profit policy institute Mm-hmm. the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Now they are a, pri- uh, a benefit corporation, a B Corp in Minnesota, that's trying to do business as a for-profit entity, but do it in all the right ways. Gotcha. Right? Got it. So there's kind of the business angle to it, but also the coffee side of it. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Uh, I'd love to recommend uh, Ricardo Levens Morales, uh, the artist I mentioned who's here in Minneapolis, uh, who does such beautiful work around so many good social justice issues. Uh, you know what? I'll make a list. How about that? I got love plenty that. of other folks. I would love to those. Yes. Sweet. Men.
0: No, we're happy to have them all. That's awesome. Seriously. But, uh, that's that bring us to our final
1: question. I believe so. Unless you have any questions for us.
2: I would love to know, given that this was your first protest and that you're kind of stepping into this, where do you go from here? I know you asked me for that kind of advice, but what do you imagine happening next or down the road?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I had a conversation with my cousin who uh, is adopted African-American, and he, I asked him, hey, like, how you doing? What What's going on? This was last night. And uh, then I asked for advice for how Back Pocket can you know grow its its um, voice in Black Lives Matter. And he said, start with your roots. And I mentioned that right in the beginning. But what does that mean to me? Um, there's like my co- – I'm an Italian. I have 25, 26 cousins and many aunts and uncles, um, and I can influence them. But I think the way to do that is through my actions. And um, I had a conversation with my other cousin and she's like, you should have on um, uh, a creator who's doing, who's a video creator for these protests. uh, He's in Chicago. So I'm like, if I have him, I don't necessarily think he needs to, or it's tough to do these podcasts because they're three hours long and it takes our full attention. But how can I scale this uh, a little little bit more aggressively, but in, in a short term way? Uh, that leads to long-term stuff. So as I'm thinking through this out loud with you in front of me, <laughs> um, I have the, an idea of having this creator, his name's uh, Mazi Oli, and he writes a blog post on our website regarding this the video that he created, like why he did it and the intention behind it to bring some more light and bring our traffic to that video creator. And uh, then I ask him the same question I just asked you, who who should I have on next? because I don't want it to feel like he's it's it's a it's a token one-off situation where I'm just bringing light to him. I think having him challenge me to tap into more of who he has or you know use that same thought process with someone else um and bring more light to creators, to people that are trying to push a message, push a narrative and give them the time of day to full creative freedom to, you know, write up their intentions and why they're doing it and use our audience and our traffic to push more people to them and help them grow their voice. Yeah. I think that'd be a little cool and it's going to, you know, help me learn a ton and hopefully help the people that are doing it, uh, grow their brand. And I love that idea of working from where you are and taking that next step forward from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of what Andrew is saying is like a lot of what we do and what we've always done is rooted in how curious we are in whoever, when, in whatever is going in our, on in our lives. So, Obviously, with the protests, we get curious and we're like, oh, we need to have someone from the black community on. We need to start talking and, and diving more into this situation. And then it goes from that learning and doing and then that reiterative process. Now that we do have the awareness, now that we have looked in a little bit and realized, oh, man, we should have been doing this a long time ago. What the heck? Um, just channeling that curiosity to the to the things that matter. Right. Once you realize that racism is a, is a big topic and needs to be talked about and brought up and normalized and continued to be pushed forward for the rest of the times until it's gone. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a channel of curiosity that back pocket can just continue to tap into as we continue to do it, as we continue to learn. That process is only going to be more refined. Right. We just started last week. Right. Think about where we could be in a year. And think about the ideas that Andrew brings to the table with, you know, it doesn't have to be a three hour podcast every time, but shift your medium, shift it to something else, highlight a different creator um, through, through written content. There's all kinds of different ways you can do it, but it's all rooted in the curiosity and rooted in the passion to actually do it.
2: And I want to applaud you and invite you and challenge you both to think about how you reproduce society as it is, how you transform society through this work. Right. Yeah. Uh, And now you're on video and on podcasts saying you're going to do this next thing so now you kind of have to right <laughs> and that's what
1: yeah, that's why we do the podcast yeah, so we it holds can hold us it, accountable yeah, holds accountable. yeah. accountability <laughs> is off the charge with that <laughs> <back> pocket
0: <laughs> what's what's funny is he'll listen back to the whole podcast and show note the thing and then he puts in brackets like funny could be an instagram post hmm. uh, inspiring could be on linkedin r- regardless what it is but he'll write down like what we said and an idea we had and it'll, and it'll just be in brackets like hold yourself accountable nice yeah. yeah and so we and like if you it's our google doc is hundreds of pages long and if you just type in the word accountable you can see all the mm-hmm. things that we've said about ourselves yeah, you keyword it yeah you keyword it i should do the same thing about every lecture i give and everything yeah. i do in the classroom
2: <laughs> there you go I love it but it's hard. highly recommended it. yeah. yeah
1: but it's all a learning process and i think that brings us to our final question yes which is um rude very much in the now uh what did you learn today
2: uh i have to admit my first thought is uh can't wait for that cold brew that sounds great um, thank you for that but, yeah, no problem. Uh, busy cold brew Busy cold brew.
1: we also actually we have a mug for you as well we're sponsored by mug company so I love it but tons like, of good stuff that
2: was the first thing off what I'm really thinking about <laughs> uh, what I really learned today uh, is I think thinking through again uh, how to prioritize uh, re- rethinking my classes the way that I do education to think about the questions you've asked around your generation around your use of media around how podcasts like this uh, can be a part of the educational process that we do. Um, uh, I'm 52, and sometimes I coast on stuff that I've been doing for a while. So I think the learning for me today is to to have some integrity with what I've been promoting to, to have that learn about it, do it, go back and learn about it cycle uh, that I need to investigate, especially if we're going to be online in our classrooms, uh, but to bring to all of the teaching that I'm doing. Mm. Uh to just refresh that commitment. Awesome. I love
1: that. I really do love that. Because Andrew and I are over here, you know, out of college, already in other areas of work. And now we're we're I'm starting to realize there's so many more outlets for education now mm-hmm. that sometimes people challenge all the time. Hey, well, what's the point of going to college if you can just go on YouTube and learn how to do certain things here and there? Right. And uh that's sometimes a flawed argument depending on what you're talking about. But again, those resources are out there for everybody why can't why not they just be resources for someone that is educating like a professor Mm -hmm. like yourself so i would yeah absolutely dive into more podcasts dive into more youtube stuff dive into more snapchat maps you know there's like (laughs) there's like plenty of stuff and uh we'd obviously love to help you out with that
2: i appreciate Mm -hmm. it thank you so much for the opportunity today yes
0: absolutely thank you that's a wrap
1: In front of her She could never pay Someone else to say What she's trying to get across to
0: you She's a star Gazer You can see the look in her eye She's a dream Jason. She's made up her mind Made up watch her mind
1: Just watching out She says, I'm gonna have to try and catch her now before she's gone.